at some point as a manager, or as a duct taper helping to fill functional gaps, you realize that you need to hire a new person to meet an organizational need. Most of the time, the needs I'm trying to fill are either my own need for a box ticker or a duct taper, or the needs of other managers, sometimes to hire people for non-BS work, or to hire their ration of goons and flunkies. The reason I need duct tapers is usually because I have to compensate for poorly functioning program management systems, both automated and human workflows, and, in some cases, a poorly functioning box ticker and even a non-BS job subordinate who has job tenure and 25 years of outstanding performance ratings from a succession of previous bosses. This last is important. Even in corporate environments, it is very difficult to remove an underling for incompetence if that underling has seniority and a long history of good performance reviews. As in government bureaucracies, the easiest way to deal with such people is often to kick them upstairs, promote them to a higher post where they become somebody else's problem. But Tanya was already at the top of this particular hierarchy, so an incompetent would continue to be her problem even if kicked upstairs. She was left with two options. Either she could move the incompetent into a bullshit position where he had no meaningful responsibilities, or, if no such position was currently available, she could leave him in place and hire someone else to really do his job. But if you take the latter course, another problem arises. You can't recruit someone for the incompetent's job since the incompetent already has that job. Instead, you have to make up a new job with an elaborate job description that you know to be bullshit because, really, you're hiring that person to do something else. Then you have to go through the motions of pretending the new person is ideally qualified to do the made-up job you don't really want him or her to do. All this involves a great deal of work. Tanya in organizations with structured job classifications and position descriptions, there has to be an established and classified job to which you can recruit someone. This is a whole professional universe of BS jobs and boondoglery unto itself. It's similar to the world of people who write grant proposals or contract bids. So, the creation of a BS job often involves creating a whole universe of BS narrative that documents the purpose and functions of the position as well as the qualifications required to successfully perform the job, while corresponding to the format and special bureaucraties prescribed by the Office of Personnel Management and my agency's HR staff. Once that's done, there has to be a narrative job announcement of the same ilk. To be eligible for hire, the applicant must present a resume incorporating all the themes and phraseology of the announcement so that the hiring software our agency uses will recognize their qualifications. After the person is hired, their duties must be spelled out in yet another document that will form the basis for annual performance appraisals. I have rewritten candidates' resumes myself to ensure that they defeat the hiring software so I can be allowed to interview and select them. If they don't make it past the computer, I can't consider them. To present a parable version, imagine you are a feudal lord again. You acquire a gardener. After 20 years of faithful service, the gardener develops a serious drinking problem. You keep finding him curled up in flower beds while dandelions sprout everywhere and the sedge begins to die. But the gardener is well-connected, 
and getting rid of him would offend people you don't feel it would be wise to offend. So you acquire a new servant, ostensibly to polish the doorknobs or perform some other meaningless task. In fact, you make sure the person you get as doorknob polisher is actually an experienced gardener. So far, so good. The problem is, in a corporate environment, you can't just summon a new servant, make up an impressive-sounding title for him, High Seneschal of the Entryways, and tell him his real job is to take over when the gardener is drunk. You have to come up with an elaborate fake description of what a doorknob polisher would in fact do. Coach your new gardener and how to pretend he's the best doorknob polisher in the kingdom, and then use the description of his duties as the basis of periodic box-ticking performance reviews. And, if the gardener sobers up and doesn't want some young punk messing with his business, now you have a full-time doorknob polisher on your hands. This, according to Tanya, is just one of the many ways that taskmasters end up creating bullshit jobs. On Complex Multiform Bullshit Jobs These five categories are not exhaustive, and new types could certainly be proposed. One compelling suggestion I heard was for a category of imaginary friends. That is, people hired ostensibly to humanize an inhuman corporate environment, but who, in fact, mainly force people to go through elaborate games of make-believe. We will be hearing about forced creativity and mindfulness seminars and obligatory charity events later on. There are workers whose entire careers are based on dressing up in costumes or otherwise designing silly games to create rapport in office environments where everyone would probably be happier just being left alone. These could be seen as box tickers of a sort, but they could equally be seen as a phenomenon unto themselves. As the previous examples suggest, it can also sometimes be clear that a job is bullshit, but still be difficult to determine precisely which of the five categories it belongs to. Often, it may seem to contain elements of several. A box taker might also be a flunky, or might end up becoming a mere flunky if the organization's internal rules change. A flunky might also be a part-time duct taper, or become a full-time duct taper if a problem arises and... Instead of fixing it, the boss decides it would be easier to just reassign one of his idle minions to deal with the effects. Consider Chloe the non-executive dean. In a way, she too was a flunky, since her post was created by higher-ups for largely symbolic reasons. But she was also a taskmaster to her own subordinates. Since she and her subordinates didn't have much to do, she spent some of her time looking for problems they could duct tape until she finally came to the realization that, even if she were given some kind of power, most of what she'd be doing would just be box-taking exercises anyway. I received one testimony from a man who worked for a telemarketing company with a contract with a major IT firm. Let's say Apple. I don't know if it was Apple. He didn't tell me which one it was. His job was to call up corporations and try to convince them to book a meeting with an Apple sales representative. The problem was that all of the firms they would call already had an Apple sales rep permanently attached to them, often working out of the same office. What's more, they were perfectly aware of this. Jim I often asked my managers how they would convince prospects of the value of taking a meeting with a sales rep from our technology giant customer 
when they already had a sales rep from that same technology giant on their premises. Some were as hapless as I was, but the more effective managers patiently explained to me that I was missing the point. An appointment-setting call is a game of social niceties. Prospects don't take a meeting because they think it might help solve a business problem. They take it because they fear it would be impolite not to. This is as pointless as pointless can be, but how exactly would one classify it? Certainly, Jim, being a telemarketer, would qualify as a goon. But he was a goon whose entire purpose was to maneuver people into box-ticking. Another ambiguous multiform category are flat catchers, who might be considered a combination of flunky and duct taper, but who have certain unique characteristics of their own. Flat catchers are subordinates hired to be at the receiving end of often legitimate complaints, but who are given that role precisely because they have absolutely no authority to do anything about them. The flat catcher is, of course, a familiar role in any bureaucracy. The man whose job it was to apologize for the fact that the carpenter didn't come might be considered a flat catcher of sorts, but if so, his position was an unusually cushy one, since he only really had to talk to university professors and administrators who were unlikely to scream, pound the table, or become visibly upset. In other contexts, flat catching can be genuinely dangerous. When I first came to the United Kingdom in 2008, one of the first things that struck me was the ubiquity of the notices in public places, reminding citizens not to physically attack minor government officials. It struck me this should rather go without saying, but apparently it doesn't. Sometimes flat catchers are well aware of what they're there for, as with Nathaniel, who signed up for a work-study program at a college in Canada and was assigned to sit in the registrar's office and call people to tell them that some form was filled out incorrectly and they'd have to do it all over again. Since all frontline workers were students, it kept the cap on how pissed off anyone could reasonably get. The first line you used when someone became agitated was, Sorry man, I know it's BS, I'm a student too. Other flight catchers seemed touchingly innocent. Tim I work in a college dormitory during the summer. I have worked at this job for three years and... At this point, it is still completely unclear to me what my actual duties are. Primarily, it seems that my job consists of physically occupying space at the front desk. This is what I spend approximately 70% of my time doing. While engaged in this, I am free to pursue my own projects, which I take to mean mainly screwing around and creating rubber band balls out of rubber bands I find in the cabinets. When I'm not busy with this, I might be checking the office email account. I have basically no training or administrative power, of course, so all I can do is forward these emails to my boss. Moving packages from the door where they get dropped off to the package room, answering phone calls. Again, I know nothing and rarely answer a question to the caller's satisfaction. Finding ketchup packets from 2005 in the desk drawers or calling maintenance to report that a resident has dropped three forks down the garbage disposal and now the sink is spewing decayed food. In addition, often people will yell at me for things that are clearly not my fault, such as the fact that they dropped three forks down the garbage disposal, or the fact that there is construction happening nearby, or the fact that they have not paid their outstanding rent balance and I am forbidden from accepting $1,400 in cash 
and my boss does not work on weekends, or the fact that there's no convenient TV available on which they can watch The Bachelor. I assume it's a kind of catharsis for them to do this yelling, since I'm 19 years old and clearly abjectly powerless. For these duties, I am paid $14 an hour. On the surface, it may seem as if Tim is just a flunky, like the unnecessary receptionist in the Dutch publishing house. It just wouldn't look good to have no one sitting there at all. But in fact, it seems likely that insofar as Tim provides a real service to his employers, it's precisely by giving angry students someone they can vent at. Why else, after three years, would they still be keeping him so completely in the dark? The main reason I hesitate to make flat catcher a category of bullshit job is because this is a real service. Tim is not making up for a structural flaw like the man whose job it was to apologize for the fact that the carpenter didn't come. He's there because if you gather together a large number of teenagers, a few will invariably throw temper tantrums about stupid things, and Tim's employer would prefer they direct their outrage at someone other than himself. In other words, Tim's is a shit job, but it's not entirely clear that it's a bullshit one. A Word on Second-Order Bullshit Jobs A final ambiguous category consists of jobs which are in no sense pointless in and of themselves, but which are ultimately pointless because they are performed in support of a pointless enterprise. An obvious example would be the cleaners, security, maintenance, and other support staff for a bullshit company. Take Kurt's office that provides the paperwork required to move German soldiers' computers down the hall. Or Nori's firm that promoted an algorithm that didn't work. Or any of a hundred fake telemarketing or compliance firms. In every one of those offices, someone has to water the plants. Someone has to clean the toilets. Someone has to handle pest control. And... While it's true that most of the companies in question operate in large office buildings hosting any number of different sorts of enterprise, which usually makes it unlikely that any one cleaner or electrician or bug sprayer is providing services exclusively for those who believe themselves to be engaged in useless occupations, if one were to measure the total proportion of cleaning or electrical work that is ultimately performed in support of bullshit, that number would be very high. One would have to assume 37%, in fact, if the YouGov survey is accurate. This must be assumed unless there is some reason to believe that pointless occupations require either more or less support work than useful ones. If 37% of jobs are bullshit, and 37% of the remaining 63% are in support of bullshit, then slightly over 50% of all labor falls into the bullshit sector in the broadest sense of the term. This figure is obviously inexact. On the one hand, a very large percentage of cleaners, electricians, builders, etc. work for private individuals and not for firms at all. On the other hand, I am counting the 13% who say they aren't sure if their jobs are bullshit or non-bullshit jobs. The 50% figure, actually 50.3%, is based on the assumption these two factors would roughly cancel each other out. If you combine this with the bullshitization of useful occupations, at least 50% in office work, presumably less in other sorts, and the various professions that basically exist only because everyone is working too hard, 
dog washers, all-night pizza delivery men, to name a few, we could probably get the real work week down to 15 hours, or even 12, without anyone noticing much. A final note, with a brief return to the question, is it possible to have a bullshit job and not know it? The idea of second-order bullshit jobs once again raises the issue of the degree to which bullshit jobs are just a matter of subjective judgment and the degree to which they have objective reality. I believe bullshit jobs to be very real. When I say we can only rely on the judgment of the worker, I'm simply talking about what we can, as observers, know about them. I would also remind the listener that, while I believe it is right to defer to the particular worker about the factual question of whether their work actually does anything at all, when it comes to the rather more subtle issue of whether the work in question does anything of value, I will think it's the best thing to defer to the overall opinion of those who work in the industry. Otherwise, we could end up in the rather silly position of saying that of 30 legal aides working in the same office and performing the same tasks, 29 have bullshit jobs because they think they do, but the one true believer who disagrees does not. Unless one takes the position that there is absolutely no reality at all except for individual perception, which is philosophically problematic, it is hard to deny the possibility that people can be wrong about what they do. For the purposes of this book, this is not that much of a problem, because what I am mainly interested in is, as I say, the subjective element. My primary aim is not so much to lay out a theory of social utility or social value as to understand the psychological, social, and political effects of the fact that so many of us labor under the secret belief that our jobs lack social utility or social value. I am also assuming that people are not usually wrong. So if one really did want to map out, say, which sectors of the economy are real and which are bullshit, the best way to do so would be to examine in which sectors the preponderance of workers feel their jobs are pointless and in which sectors the preponderance do not. Even more, one would try to tease out the tacit theory of social value that led them to this conclusion. If someone says, my job is completely pointless, what are the unspoken criteria being applied? Some, like Tom, the special effects artist, have thought these things through and can simply tell you. In other cases, workers are not able to articulate a theory, but you can tell that one must be there, if only on a not-completely-conscious level. So you have to tease out the theory by examining the language people use and observing their gut reactions to the work they do. For me, this isn't really a problem. I'm an anthropologist, teasing out the implicit theory that lies behind people's everyday actions and reactions is what anthropologists are trained to do. But then, there's the problem that people's theories are not all the same. For instance, it has come to my attention, while conducting this research, that many of those employed in the banking industry are privately convinced that 99% of what banks do is bullshit that does not benefit humanity in any way. I can only assume that others working in the industry disagree with this assessment. Is there any pattern here? Does it vary with seniority? Are higher-ups more likely to believe in the social benefits of banking? Or do many of them secretly agree that their work has no social value but just don't care? 
Maybe they even take delight in the knowledge that their work does not benefit the public, thinking of themselves as pirates or scam artists in some romantic sense. It's impossible to say, though Jeffrey Sachs's testimony in the last chapter at least suggests that many at the very top simply feel they have a right to whatever they can get. The real problem for my approach comes when one has to deal with those in professions that everyone else regularly invokes as prime examples of bullshit jobs who don't seem to think of their jobs that way themselves. Again, no one has done detailed comparative survey work in this regard, but I did notice certain interesting patterns in my own data. I heard from only a smattering of lawyers, though from a large number of legal aides, only two PR flacks and not a single lobbyist. Does this mean we have to conclude these are largely non-bullshit occupations? Not necessarily. There are any number of other possible explanations for their silence. For instance, perhaps fewer of them hang around on Twitter, or maybe the ones that do are more inclined to lie. I should add as a final note, there was really only one class of people that not only denied their jobs were pointless, but expressed outright hostility to the very idea that our economy is rife with bullshit jobs. These were, predictably enough, business owners and anyone else in charge of hiring and firing. Tanya appears to be something of an exception in this regard. In fact, for many years I have been receiving periodic unsolicited communications from indignant entrepreneurs and executives telling me my entire premise is wrong. No one, they insist, would ever spend company money on an employee who wasn't needed. Such communications rarely offer particularly sophisticated arguments. Most just employ the usual circular argument that since, in a market economy, none of the things described in this chapter could have actually occurred, that therefore they didn't. So all the people who are convinced their jobs are worthless must be deluded or self-important or simply don't understand their real function which is fully visible only to those above. One might be tempted to conclude from these responses that there is at least one class of people who genuinely don't realize their jobs are bullshit. Except, of course, what CEOs do isn't really bullshit. For better or for worse, their actions do make a difference in the world. They're just blind to all the bullshit they create. Chapter 3 why do those in bullshit jobs regularly report themselves unhappy? On Spiritual Violence, Part 1 Workplaces are fascist. They're cults designed to eat your life. Bosses hoard your minutes jealously like dragons hoard gold. Nori In this chapter, I'd like to start exploring some of the moral and psychological effects of being trapped inside a bullshit job. In particular, I want to ask the obvious question. Why is this even a problem? Or, to phrase it more precisely, why does having a pointless job so regularly cause people to be miserable? On the face of it, it's not obvious that it should. After all, we're talking about people who are effectively being paid, often very good money, to do nothing. One might imagine that those being paid to do nothing would consider themselves fortunate, especially when they are more or less left to themselves. But while every now and then I did hear testimonies from those who said they couldn't believe their luck in landing such a position, the remarkable thing is how very few of them there were. And, as we'll see, 
even these tended to be highly ambivalent. Many, in fact, seemed perplexed by their own reaction, unable to understand why their situation left them feeling so worthless or depressed. Indeed, the fact that there was no clear explanation for their feelings, no story they could tell themselves about the nature of their situation and what was wrong about it, often contributed to their misery. At least a galley slave knows that he's oppressed. An office worker forced to sit for seven and a half hours a day pretending to type into a screen for $18 an hour, or a junior member of a consultancy team forced to give the exact same seminar on innovation and creativity week in and week out for $50,000 a year, is just confused. In an earlier book about debt, I wrote about the phenomenon of moral confusion. I took as my example the fact that throughout human history, most people seem to have agreed both that paying back one's debts was the essence of morality and that moneylenders were evil. While the rise of bullshit jobs is a comparatively recent phenomenon, I think it creates a similar moral embarrassment. On the one hand, everyone is encouraged to assume that human beings will always tend to seek their best advantage, that is, to find themselves a situation where they can get the most benefit for the least expenditure of time and effort. And, for the most part, we do assume this, especially if we are talking about such matters in the abstract. We can't just give poor people handouts. Then they won't have any incentive to look for work. On the other hand, our own experience, and those of the people we are closest to, tends to contradict these assumptions at many points. People almost never act and react to situations in quite the way our theories of human nature would predict. The only reasonable conclusion is that, at least in certain key essentials, these theories about human nature are wrong. In this chapter, I don't just want to ask why people are so unhappy doing what seems to them meaningless make-work, but to think more deeply about what that unhappiness can tell us about what people are and what they are basically about. About one young man apparently handed a sinecure who nonetheless found himself unable to handle the situation. I will begin with a story. The following is the tale of a young man named Eric, whose first experience of the world of work was of a job that proved absolutely, even comically, pointless. Eric. I've had many, many awful jobs, but the one that was undoubtedly pure liquid bullshit was my first professional job post-graduation a dozen years ago. I was the first of my family to attend university, and due to a profound naivete about the purpose of higher education, I somehow expected that it would open up vistas of hitherto unforeseen opportunity. Instead, it offered graduate training schemes at PricewaterhouseCoopers, KPMG, etc. I preferred to sit on the dole for six months using my graduate library privileges to read French and Russian novels before the dole forced me to attend an interview, which, sadly, led to a job. That job involved working for a large design firm as its Interface Administrator. The interface was a content management system, an intranet with a graphical user interface, basically, designed to enable this company's work to be shared across its seven offices around the UK. Eric soon discovered that he was hired only because of a communication problem in the organization. In other words, he was a duct taper. 
The entire computer system was necessary only because the partners were unable to pick up the phone and coordinate with one another. Eric The firm was a partnership, with each office managed by one partner. All of them seemed to have attended one of three private schools and the same design school, the Royal College of Art. Being unbelievably competitive 40-something public school boys, they often tried to outcompete one another to win bids, and on more than one occasion, two different offices had found themselves arriving at the same client's office to pitch work and having to hastily combine their bids in the parking lot of some dismal business park. The interface was designed to make the company super collaborative across all of its offices to ensure that this, and other myriad fuck-ups, didn't happen again, and my job was to help develop it, run it, and sell it to the staff. The problem was, it soon became apparent that Eric wasn't even really a duct taper. He was a box ticker. One partner had insisted on the project, and rather than argue with him, the others pretended to agree. Then they did everything in their power to make sure it didn't work. Eric I should have realized that this was one partner's idea that no one else actually wanted to implement. Why else would they be paying a 21-year-old history graduate with no IT experience to do this? They bought the cheapest software they could find, from a bunch of absolute crooks, so it was buggy, prone to crashing, and looked like a Windows 3.1 screensaver. The entire workforce was paranoid that it was designed to monitor their productivity, record their keystrokes, or flag that they were torrenting porn on the company internet, and so they wanted nothing to do with it. As I had absolutely no background in coding or software development, there was very little I could do to improve the thing, so I was basically tasked with selling and managing a badly functioning unwanted turd. After a few months, I realized that there was very little for me to do at all most days, aside from answer a few queries from confused designers wanting to know how to upload a file or search for someone's email on the address book. The utter pointlessness of his situation soon led to subtle and then increasingly unsubtle acts of rebellion. Eric I started arriving late and leaving early. I extended the company policy of a pint on Friday lunchtime into pints every lunchtime. I read novels at my desk. I went out for lunchtime walks that lasted three hours. I almost perfected my French reading ability, sitting with my shoes off with a copy of Le Monde and a Petit Robert. I tried to quit, and my boss offered me a 2,600-pound raise, which I reluctantly accepted. They needed me precisely because I didn't have the skills to implement something that they didn't want to implement, and they were willing to pay to keep me. Perhaps one could paraphrase Marx's economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 here. To forestall their fears of alienation from their own labor, they had to sacrifice me up to a greater alienation from potential human growth. As time went on, Eric became more and more flagrant in his defiance, hoping he could find something he could do that might actually cause him to be fired. He started showing up to work drunk, and taking paid business trips for non-existent meetings. Eric A colleague from the Edinburgh office, to whom I had poured out my woes when drunk at the annual general meeting, started to arrange phony meetings with me. 
one son a golf course near Glen Eagles, me hacking at the turf and borrowed golf shoes two sizes too large. After getting away with that, I started arranging fictional meetings with people in the London office. The firm would put me up in a nicotine-coated room in the St. Athens in Bloomsbury, and I would meet old London friends for some good old-fashioned all-day drinking in Soho pubs, which often turned into all-night drinking in Shoreditch. More than once, I returned to my office the following Monday in last Wednesday's work shirt. I'd long since stopped shaving, and by this point, my hair looked like it was robbed from a Zeppelin roadie. I tried on two more occasions to quit, but both times my boss offered me more cash. By the end, I was being paid a stupid sum for a job that, at most, involved me answering the phone twice a day. I eventually broke down on the platform of Bristol Temple Meads train station one late summer's afternoon. I'd always fancied seeing Bristol, and so I decided to visit the Bristol office to look at user take-up. I actually spent three days taking MDMA at an anarcho-syndicalist house party in St. Paul's, and the dissociative come-down made me realize how profoundly upsetting it was to live in a state of utter purposelessness. After heroic efforts, Eric did finally manage to get himself replaced. Eric. Eventually, responding to pressure, my boss hired a junior fresh out of a computer science degree to see if some improvements could be made to our graphical user interface. On this kid's first day at work, I wrote him a list of what needed to be done, and then immediately wrote my resignation letter, which I posted under my boss's door when he took his next vacation, surrendering my last paycheck over the telephone in lieu of the statutory notice period. I flew that same week to Morocco to do very little in the coastal town of Essaouira. When I came back, I spent the next six months living in a squat, growing my own vegetables on three acres of land. I read your strike piece when it first came out. It might have been a revelation for some that capitalism creates unnecessary jobs in order for the wheels to merely keep on turning, but it wasn't to me. The remarkable thing about this story is that many would consider Eric's a dream job. He was being paid good money to do nothing. He was also almost completely unsupervised. He was given respect and every opportunity to game the system. Yet, despite all that, it gradually destroyed him. Why? To a large degree, I think, this is really a story about social class. Eric was a young man from a working-class background, a child of factory workers, no less, fresh out of college and full of expectations, suddenly confronted with a jolting introduction to the real world. Reality, in this instance, consisted of the fact that A, while middle-aged executives can be counted on to simply assume that any 20-something white male will be at least something of a computer whiz, even if, as in this case, he had no computer training of any kind, and B, might even grant someone like Eric a cushy situation if it suited their momentary purposes. C, they basically saw him as something of a joke. Which his job almost literally was. His presence in the company was very close to a practical joke some designers were playing on one another. Even more, what drove Eric crazy was the fact that there was simply no way he could construe his job as serving any sort of purpose. He couldn't even tell himself he was doing it to feed his family. He didn't have one yet. 
Coming from a background where most people took pride in making, maintaining, and fixing things, or anyway felt that was the sort of thing people should take pride in, he had assumed that going to university and moving into the professional world would mean doing the same sorts of thing on a grander, even more meaningful scale. Instead, he ended up getting hired precisely for what he wasn't able to do. He tried to just resign. They kept offering him more money. He tried to get himself fired. They wouldn't fire him. He tried to rub their faces in it, to make himself a parody of what they seemed to think he was. It didn't make the slightest bit of difference. To get a sense of what was really happening here, let us imagine a second history major. We can refer to him as Anti-Eric, a young man of a professional background but placed in exactly the same situation. How might Anti-Eric have behaved differently? Well, likely as not, he would have played along with the charade. Instead of using phony business trips to practice forms of self-annihilation, Anti-Eric would have used them to accumulate social capital, connections that would eventually allow him to move on to better things. He would have treated the job as a stepping stone, and this very project of professional advancement would have given him a sense of purpose. But such attitudes and dispositions don't come naturally. Children from professional backgrounds are taught to think like that from an early age. Eric, who had not been trained to act and think this way, couldn't bring himself to do it. As a result, he ended up, for a time at least, in a squat growing tomatoes. After writing this, I presented my analysis to Eric, who confirmed it and added details. I could definitely see that the middle and upper middle class kids in the lower rungs of that job were seeing it as a path to career advancement, partly in terms of how they socialized around work, watching the rugby on a weekend in someone's suburban Bovis home conservatory, cocktails and tacky wine bars, but always networking, networking and that for some it was merely a stopgap that filled in an otherwise blank spot on the CV until a family member found them a better opportunity. He added, It's interesting that you mention the idea of the caring classes. My father's first remark when I quit that position was to say that I was a nonsensical idiot to turn down such a good paycheck. His second was to ask, What good could that job do for anyone anyway? On the other hand, Eric pointed out he does now have two advanced degrees, a research fellowship, and a successful career. He attributes much of this to the knowledge of social theory he gained while living in the squat. Concerning the experience of falseness and purposelessness at the core of bullshit jobs, and the importance now felt of conveying the experience of falseness and purposelessness to youth. In a deeper way, Eric's story brings together almost everything that those with bullshit jobs say is distressing about their situation. It's not just the purposelessness, though certainly it's that. It's also the falseness. I've already mentioned the indignation telemarketers feel when they are forced to try to trick or pressure people into doing something they think is against their best interests. This is a complicated feeling. We don't even really have a name for it. When we think of scams, after all, we think of grifters, confidence artists. They are easy to see as romantic figures, rebels living by their wits, as well as admirable because they have achieved a certain form of mastery. This is why they make acceptable heroes in Hollywood movies. A confidence artist could easily take delight in what she's doing. But 
being forced to scam someone is altogether different. In such circumstances, it's hard not to feel you're ultimately in the same situation as the person you're scamming. You're both being pressured and manipulated by your employer, only in your case, with the added indignity that you're also betraying the trust of someone whose side you should be on. One might imagine the feelings sparked by most bullshit jobs would be very different. After all, if the employee is scamming anyone, it's his employer, and he's doing it with his employer's full consent. But somehow, this is precisely what many report to be so disturbing about the situation. You don't even have the satisfaction of knowing you're putting something over on someone. You're not even living your own lie. Most of the time, you're not even quite living somebody else's lie either. Your job is more like a boss's unzippered fly that everyone can see but also knows better than to mention. If anything, this appears to compound the sense of purposelessness. Perhaps anti-Eric would indeed have found a way to turn around that purposelessness and seen himself as in on the joke. Perhaps if he were a real go-getter, he'd have used his administrative skills to effectively take over the office. But even children of the rich and powerful often find this difficult to pull off. The following testimony gives a sense of the moral confusion they can often feel. Rufus I got the job because my dad was a vice president at the company. I was charged with handling complaints. Given that it was, in name, a biomedical company, all return product was considered a biohazard. So I was able to spend a lot of time in a room all by myself, with no supervision and essentially no work to do. The bulk of my memory of the job involves either playing Minesweeper or listening to podcasts. I did spend hours poring over spreadsheets, tracking changes on Word documents, etc., but I guarantee you that I contributed nothing to this company. I spent every minute at the office wearing headphones. I paid only the smallest attention possible to the people around me and the work I was assigned. I hated every minute working there. In fact, more days than not, I went home early from work, took two or three hour lunch breaks, spent hours in the bathroom, wandering around, and nobody ever said a word. I was compensated for every minute. Thinking back on it, it was kind of a dream job. Retrospectively, Rufus understands that he got a ridiculously sweet deal. He seems rather baffled, actually, why he hated the job so much at the time but surely he couldn't have been entirely unaware of how his co-workers must have seen him. Boss's kid getting paid to goof off, feels he's too good to talk to them, supervisors clearly informed, hands off. It could hardly have evoked warm feelings. Still, this story raises another question. If Rufus's father didn't actually expect his son to do the job, why did he insist he take it in the first place? He could presumably just as easily have given his son an allowance or, alternately, assigned him a job that needed doing, coached him on his duties, and taken some minimal effort to make sure those tasks were actually carried out. Instead, he seems to have felt it was more important for Rufus to be able to say he had a job than to actually acquire work experience. Rufus more or less confirmed this when I asked about his father's motivations. He said his father couldn't stand the company either felt he was basically in a bullshit job himself, and just wanted his son to have something to put on his CV. 
The question remains why, as VP, he couldn't just have lied. That's puzzling. It's all the more puzzling because the father's attitude appears to be extremely common. It wasn't always so. There was once a time when most students in college whose parents could afford it, or who qualified for scholarships or assistance, received a stipend. It was considered a good thing that there might be a few years in a young man's or woman's life where money was not the primary motivation, where he or she could thus be free to pursue other forms of value, say, philosophy, poetry, athletics, sexual experimentation, altered states of consciousness, politics, or the history of Western art. Nowadays, it is considered important they should work. However, it is not considered important they should work at anything useful. In fact, like Rufus, they're barely expected to work at all, just to show up and pretend to do so. A number of students wrote just to complain to me about this phenomenon. Here, Patrick reflects on his job as a casual retail assistant in a student union convenience store. Patrick. I didn't actually need the job. I was getting by financially without it. But after some pressure from my family, I applied for it out of some warped sense of obligation to get experience and work to prepare me for whatever lay ahead beyond university. In reality, the job just took away time and energy from other activities I had been doing, like campaigning and activism, or reading for pleasure, which I think made me resent it even more. The job was pretty standard for a student union convenience store and involved serving people on the till, could have easily been done by a machine, with the explicitly stated requirement in my performance review after my trial period that I should be more positive and happy when serving customers. So, not only did they want me to do work that could have been performed by a machine just as effectively, they wanted me to pretend that I was enjoying that state of affairs. It was just about bearable if my shift was during lunchtime, when it got really busy, so time went by relatively quickly. Being on shift on a Sunday afternoon, when nobody frequented the SU, was just appalling. They had this thing about us not being able to just do nothing, even if the shop was empty. So we couldn't just sit at the till and read a magazine. Instead, the manager made up utterly meaningless work for us to do. Like going round the whole shop and checking that things were in date, even though we knew for a fact they were because of the turnover rate, or rearranging products on shelves in even more pristine order than they already were. The very, very worst thing about the job was that it gave you so much time to think, because the work was so lacking in any intellectual demand. So I just thought so much about how bullshit my job was, how it could be done by a machine, how much I couldn't wait for full communism and just endlessly theorize the alternatives to a system where millions of human beings have to do that kind of work for their whole lives in order to survive. I couldn't stop thinking about how miserable it made me. This is what happens, of course, when you first open the entire world of social and political possibility to a young mind by sending it to college, and then tell it to stop thinking and tidy up already tidy shelves. Parents now feel it is important that young minds should have this experience. But what precisely was Patrick supposed to be learning through this exercise? Here's another example. Brendan. 
I'm at a small college in Massachusetts training to be a high school history teacher. Recently, I started work at the dining commons. A co-worker told me on my first day, half of this job is making things look clean, and the other half is looking busy. For the first couple of months, they had me monitor the back room. I would clean the buffet slider, restock the desserts, and wipe down tables when people left. It's not a big room, so usually I could do all my tasks in five minutes out of every thirty. I ended up being able to get a lot of reading for my coursework done. However, sometimes one of the less understanding supervisors would be working. In that case, I would have to keep the corner of my eye open at all times in order to make sure they would always see me acting busy. I have no idea why the job description couldn't just acknowledge that I wouldn't have much to do. If I didn't have to spend so much time and energy looking busy, I could get my reading and the table cleaning done quicker and more efficiently. But of course, efficiency is not the point. In fact, if we are simply talking about teaching students about efficient work habits, the best thing would be to leave them to their studies. Schoolwork is, after all, real work in every sense except that you don't get paid for it. Though if you're receiving a scholarship or an allowance, you actually are getting paid for it. In fact, like almost all the other activities Patrick or Brendan might have been engaged in had they not been obliged to take on real-world jobs, their classwork is actually more real than the largely make-work projects they ended up being forced to do. Schoolwork has real content. One must attend classes, do the readings, write exercises or papers, and be judged on the results. But... In practical terms, this appears to be exactly what makes schoolwork appear inadequate to those authorities, parents, teachers, governments, administrators, who have all come to feel that they must also teach students about the real world. It's too results-oriented. You can study any way you want to so long as you pass the test. A successful student has to learn self-discipline, but this is not the same as learning how to operate under orders. Of course, the same is true of most of the other projects and activities students might otherwise be engaged in. Whether rehearsing for plays, playing in a band, political activism, or baking cookies or growing pot to sell to fellow students. All of which might be appropriate training for a society of self-employed adults, or even one made up primarily of the largely autonomous professionals, doctors, lawyers, architects, and so forth, that universities were once designed to produce. It might even be appropriate to train young people for the democratically organized collectives that were the subject of Patrick's reveries about full communism. But, as Brendan points out, it is very much not preparation for work in today's increasingly bullshitized workplace. Brendan. A lot of these student work jobs have us doing some sort of bullshit task like scanning IDs or monitoring empty rooms or cleaning already clean tables. Everyone is cool with it because we get money while we study, but otherwise there's absolutely no reason not to just give students the money and automate or eliminate the work. I'm not altogether familiar with how the whole thing works, but a lot of this work is funded by the feds and tied to our student loans. It's part of a whole federal system designed to assign students a lot of debt, thereby promising to coerce them into labor in the future, as student debts are so hard to get rid of accompanied by a bullshit education program designed to train and prepare us for our future bullshit jobs. Brendan, 
has a point, and I'll be returning to his analysis in a later chapter. Here, though, I want to focus on what students forced into these make-work jobs actually learn from them. Lessons that they do not learn from more traditional student occupations and pursuits, such as studying for tests, planning parties, and so on. Even judging by Brendan's and Patrick's accounts, and I could easily reference many others, I think we can conclude that from these jobs, students learn at least five things. One, how to operate under others' direct supervision. Two, how to pretend to work even when nothing needs to be done. Three, that one is not paid money to do things, however useful or important, that one actually enjoys. Four, that one is paid money to do things that are in no way useful or important and that one does not enjoy. And five, that at least in jobs requiring interaction with the public, even when one is being paid to carry out tasks one does not enjoy, one also has to pretend to be enjoying it. This is what Brendan meant by how make-work student employment was a way of preparing and training students for their future bullshit jobs. He was studying to be a high school history teacher. A meaningful job, certainly, but, as with almost all teaching positions in the United States, one where the proportion of hours spent teaching in class or preparing lessons has declined, while the total number of hours dedicated to administrative tasks has increased dramatically. This is what Brendan is suggesting, that it's no coincidence that the more jobs requiring college degrees become suffused and bullshit, the more pressure is put on college students to learn about the real world by dedicating less of their time to self-organized goal-directed activity and more of it to tasks that will prepare them for the more mindless aspects of their future careers. Why many of our fundamental assumptions on human motivation appear to be incorrect. I do not think there is any thrill that can go through the human heart like that felt by the inventor as he sees some creation of the brain unfolding to success. Such emotions make a man forget food, sleep, friends, love, everything. Nikola Tesla If the argument of the previous section is correct, one could perhaps conclude that Eric's problem was just that he hadn't been sufficiently prepared for the pointlessness of the modern workplace. He had passed through the old education system, some traces of it are left, designed to prepare students to actually do things. This led to false expectations and an initial shock of disillusionment that he could not overcome. Perhaps. But I don't think that's the full story. There's something much deeper going on here. Eric might have been unusually ill-prepared to endure the meaninglessness of his first job, but just about everyone does see such meaninglessness as something to be endured, despite the fact that we are all trained, in one way or another, to assume that human beings should be perfectly delighted to find themselves in his situation of being paid good money not to work. Let us return to our initial problem. We may begin by asking why we assume that someone being paid to do nothing should consider himself fortunate. What is the basis of that theory of human nature from which this follows? The obvious place to look is at economic theory, which has turned this kind of thought into a science. According to classical economic theory, homo economicus, or economic man, that is, the model human being that lies behind every prediction made by the discipline, is assumed to be motivated above all 
by a calculus of costs and benefits. All the mathematical equations by which economists bedazzle their clients or the public are founded on one simple assumption, that everyone, left to his own devices, will choose the course of action that provides the most of what he wants for the least expenditure of resources and effort. It is the simplicity of the formula that makes the equations possible. If one were to admit that humans have complicated motivations, there would be too many factors to take into account. It would be impossible to properly weight them, and predictions could not be made. Therefore, while an economist will say that while of course everyone is aware that human beings are not really selfish calculating machines, assuming that they are makes it possible to explain a very large proportion of what humans do, and this proportion, and only this, is the subject matter of economic science. This is a reasonable statement as far as it goes. The problem is, there are many domains of human life where the assumption clearly doesn't hold, and some of them are precisely in the domain of what we like to call the economy. If minimax, minimize cost, maximize benefit assumptions were correct, people like Eric would be delighted with their situation. He was receiving a lot of money for virtually zero expenditure of resources and energy. Basically, bus fare plus the amount of calories it took to walk around the office and answer a couple of calls. Yet all the other factors, class, expectations, personality, and so on, don't determine whether someone in that situation would be unhappy, since it would appear that just about anyone in that situation would be unhappy. They only really affect how unhappy they will be. Much of our public discourse about work starts from the assumption that the economist's model is correct. People have to be compelled to work. If the poor are to be given relief so they don't actually starve, it has to be delivered in the most humiliating and onerous ways possible, because otherwise they would become dependent and have no incentive to find proper jobs. The underlying assumption is that if humans are offered the option to be parasites, of course they'll take it. It is interesting to note that the British welfare state, like most post-World War II welfare states, was consciously constructed against the principle that the poor need to be compelled to labor. This started to change almost everywhere starting in the 1970s. In fact, almost every bit of available evidence indicates that this is not the case. Human beings certainly tend to rankle over what they consider excessive or degrading work. Few may be inclined to work at the pace or intensity that scientific managers have, since the 1920s, decided they should. People also have a particular aversion to being humiliated. But leave them to their own devices, and they almost invariably rankle even more at the prospect of having nothing useful to do. There is endless empirical evidence to back this up. To choose a couple of particularly colorful examples... Working-class people who win the lottery and find themselves multimillionaires rarely quit their jobs. And if they do, usually they soon say they regret it. Since the 70s, surveys have regularly revealed that 74% to 80% of workers claim that if they won the lottery or came into some similar fortune, they would continue working. The first study was by Morrison Weiss, 1966, but it has been replicated frequently since. Even in those prisons where inmates are provided free food and shelter and are not actually required to work, denying them the right to press shirts in the prison laundry, 
clean latrines in the prison gym, or package computers for Microsoft in the prison workshop is used as a form of punishment. And this is true even where the work doesn't pay, or where prisoners have access to other income. Here, we are dealing with people who can be assumed to be among the least altruistic society has produced, yet they find sitting around all day watching television a far worse fate than even the harshest and least rewarding forms of labor. The redeeming aspect of prison work is, as Dostoevsky noted, that at least it was seen to be useful, even if it is not useful to the prisoner himself. Actually, one of the few positive side effects of a prison system is that, simply by providing us with information of what happens and how humans behave under extreme situations of deprivation, we can learn basic truths about what it means to be human. To take another example, we now know that placing prisoners in solitary confinement for more than six months at a stretch inevitably results in physically observable forms of brain damage. Human beings are not just social animals. They are so intrinsically social that if they are cut off from relations with other humans, they begin to decay physically. I suspect the work experiment can be seen in similar terms. Humans may or may not be cut out for a regular 9-to-5 labor discipline. It seems to me that there is considerable evidence that they aren't, but even hardened criminals generally find the prospect of just sitting around doing nothing even worse. Why should this be the case? And just how deeply rooted are such dispositions in human psychology? There's reason to believe the answer is very deep indeed. As early as 1901, the German psychologist Karl Gross discovered that infants express extraordinary happiness when they first figure out they can cause predictable effects in the world, pretty much regardless of what that effect is or whether it could be construed as having any benefit to them. Let's say they discover that they can move a pencil by randomly moving their arms. Then they realize they can achieve the same effect by moving in the same pattern again. Expressions of utter joy ensue. Gross coined the phrase, the pleasure at being the cause, suggesting that it is the basis for play, which he saw as the exercise of powers simply for the sake of exercising them. This discovery has powerful implications for understanding human motivation more generally. Before Gross, most Western political philosophers, and after them, economists and social scientists, had been inclined either to assume that humans seek power simply because of an inherent desire for conquest and domination, or else for a purely practical desire to guarantee access to the sources of physical gratification, safety, or reproductive success. Gross's findings, which have since been confirmed by a century of experimental evidence, suggested maybe there was something much simpler behind what Nietzsche called the will to power. Children come to understand that they exist, that they are discrete entities separate from the world around them, largely by coming to understand that they are the thing which just caused something to happen, the proof of which is the fact that they can make it happen again and also, crucially, that they might just as easily not have done it. Hence, Gross defined the attendant joy as being the feeling of freedom. Crucially, too, this realization is, from the very beginning, marked with a species of delight that remains the fundamental background of all subsequent human experience. 
So, for instance, another psychoanalyst, G.A. Klein, writes, When the baby starts to grasp articles, sits up, tries to walk, he begins a process that eventually yields the sense that the locus and origins of these achievements is in himself. When the child thus feels the change is originating within himself, he begins to have a sense of being himself, a psychologically, not simply physically, autonomous unit. Francis Bruchek, in The Sense of Self, feels this doesn't go far enough. The sense of efficacy is at the core of the primitive sense of self and not a property of some already defined self. This primitive feeling of efficacy is what the psychoanalytic literature refers to as infantile omnipotence, a sense of efficacy, the limits of which are not yet apprehended. The primary sense of self emerges from effectance pleasure associated with the successful correspondence of intention and effect. There is thus a fundamental joy in the knowledge of one's own existence that is tied to one's freedom to have effects on the world around you, including others, at first regardless of what those may be. It is hard, perhaps, to think of our sense of self as grounded in action because when we are truly engrossed in doing something, especially something we know how to do very well, from running a race to solving a complicated logical problem, we tend to forget that we exist. But even as we dissolve into what we do, the foundational pleasure at being the cause remains, as it were, the unstated ground of our being. Gross himself was primarily interested in asking why humans play games, and why they become so passionate and excited over the outcome, even when they know it makes no difference who wins or loses outside the confines of the game itself. He saw the creation of imaginary worlds as simply an extension of his core principle. This might be so. But what we're concerned with here, unfortunately, is less with the implications for healthy development and more with what happens when something goes terribly wrong. In fact, experiments have also shown that if one first allows a child to discover and experience the delight in being able to cause a certain effect, and then suddenly denies it to them, the results are dramatic. First rage, refusal to engage, and then a kind of catatonic folding in on oneself and withdrawing from the world entirely. Psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Francis Bruchek called this the trauma of failed influence, and suspected that such traumatic experiences might lie behind many mental health issues later in life. Francis Bruchek in Efficacy in Infancy, a review of some experimental studies and their possible implications to clinical theory. The total inner separation from the environment in response to such traumata may foreshadow later schizophrenic, depressive, narcissistic, or phobic behavior depending on the frequency, severity, and duration of the experiences of failed influence or invalidated expectancy, the age at which such traumata occur, and how much of a sense of self based on efficacy experiences has been established prior to the traumata. If this is so, then it begins to give us a sense of why being trapped in a job where one is treated as if one were usefully employed and has to play along with the pretense that one is usefully employed but at the same time is keenly aware one is not usefully employed, would have devastating effects. It's not just an assault on the person's sense of self-importance, but also a direct attack on the very foundations of the sense that one even is a self. A human being unable to have a meaningful impact on the world ceases to exist.
A brief excursus on the history of makework and particularly of the concept of buying other people's time. Boss, how come you're not working? Worker, there's nothing to do. Boss, well, you're supposed to pretend like you're working. Worker, hey, I got a better idea. Why don't you pretend like I'm working? You get paid more than me. Bill Hicks Comedy Routine Gross's theory of the pleasure at being the cause led him to devise a theory of play as make-believe. Humans invent games and diversions, he proposed, for the exact same reason the infant takes delight in his ability to move a pencil. We wish to exercise our powers as an end in themselves. The fact that the situation is made up doesn't detract from this. In fact, it adds another level of contrivance. This, Gross suggested, and here he was falling back on the ideas of Romantic German philosopher Friedrich Schiller, is really all that freedom is. Schiller argued that the desire to create art is simply a manifestation of the urge to play as the exercise of freedom for its own sake as well. I am, of course, offering an extremely simplified version of Schiller's philosophy. Freedom is our ability to make things up just for the sake of being able to do so. Yet, at the same time, it is precisely the make-believe aspect of their work that student workers like Patrick and Brendan find the most infuriating. Indeed, that just about anyone who's ever had a wage-labor job that was closely supervised invariably finds the most maddening aspect of her job. Working serves a purpose, or is meant to do so. Being forced to pretend to work just for the sake of working is an indignity, since the demand is perceived, rightly, as the pure exercise of power for its own sake. If make-believe play is the purest expression of human freedom, make-believe work, imposed by others, is the purest expression of lack of freedom. It's not entirely surprising, then, that the first historical evidence we have for the notion that certain categories of people really ought to be working at all times, even if there's nothing to do, and that work needs to be made up to fill their time, even if there's nothing that really needs doing, refers to people who are not free. Prisoners and slaves. Two categories that historically have largely overlapped. In legal terms, most slaveholding societies justify the institution by the legal fiction that slaves are prisoners of war. And in fact, many slaves in human history were captured as the result of military operations. The first chain gangs were employed in Roman plantations. They were made up of slaves who had been placed in the plantation's ergastulum, or prison, for disobedience or attempted escape. It would be fascinating, though probably impossible, to write a history of make-work, to explore when and in what circumstances idleness first came to be seen as a problem or even a sin. I'm not aware that anyone has actually tried to do this. There is certainly work on moralists in China, India, the classical world, and their concepts of work and idleness, for instance, the Roman distinction of otium and negotium, but I'm speaking here more of the practical questions, such as when and where even useless work came to be seen as preferable to no work at all. But all evidence we have indicates that the modern form of make-work that Patrick and Brendan are complaining about is historically new. This is in part because most people who have ever existed have assumed that normal human work patterns take the form of periodic intense bursts of energy, 
followed by relaxation, followed by slowly picking up again toward another intense bout. This is what farming is like, for instance. All hands on deck, mobilization around planting and harvest, but otherwise whole seasons taken up largely by minding and mending things, minor projects and puttering around. But even daily tasks or projects, such as building a house or preparing for a feast, tend to take roughly this form. In other words, the traditional student's pattern of lackadaisical study leading up to intense cramming before exams and then slacking off again, I like to refer to it as punctuated hysteria, is typical of how human beings have always tended to go about necessary tasks if no one forces them to act otherwise. Writing of 16th and 17th century weavers, E.P. Thompson informs us, The work pattern was one of alternate bouts of intense labor and of idleness, wherever men were in control of their own working lives. The pattern persists among some self-employed, artists, writers, small farmers, and perhaps also with students, today, and provokes the question whether it is not a natural human work rhythm. On Monday or Tuesday, according to tradition, the handloom went to the slow chant of plenty of time, plenty of time. On Thursday and Friday, a day to late a day. Some students may engage in cartoonishly exaggerated versions of this pattern. When I was in high school, there was a kind of macho game among the coolest students before exams where they would boast how many hours they'd gone without sleep, cramming beforehand. 36, 48, even 60 hours. It was macho because it implied such students had not done any study at all before, since they had been thinking about more important things. I rapidly figured out that if one reduced oneself to a mindless zombie, the extra hours of study weren't actually going to help. I suspect this is one reason I am now a professor. But good students figure out how to get the pace roughly right. Not only is it what humans will do if left to their own devices, but there's no reason to believe that forcing them to act otherwise is likely to cause greater efficiency or productivity. Often, it will have precisely the opposite effect. Obviously, some tasks are more dramatic and therefore lend themselves better to alternating intense, frenetic bursts of activity and relative torpor. This has always been true. Hunting animals is more demanding than gathering vegetables, even if the latter is done in sporadic bursts. Building houses better lends itself to heroic efforts than cleaning them. As these examples imply, in most human societies, men tend to try, and usually succeed, to monopolize the most exciting, dramatic kinds of work. They'll set the fires that burn down the forest on which they plant their fields, for example, and, if they can, relegate to women the more monotonous and time-consuming tasks, such as weeding. One might say that men will always take for themselves the kind of jobs one can tell stories about afterward, and try to assign women the kind you tell stories during. Hunting versus gathering again being the paradigmatic example. Childcare is probably the most dramatic exception. It's largely a woman's domain, but it is always generating stories. The more patriarchal the society, the more power men have over women, the more this will tend to be the case. The same pattern tends to reproduce itself whenever one group clearly is in a position of power over another, with very few exceptions. Feudal lords, insofar as they worked at all, were fighters. Their lives tended to alternate between dramatic feats of arms and near-total idleness and torpor. 
I'm ignoring here the managerial functions of running their estates, but it's not clear this was considered labor at the time. I suspect it wasn't. Peasants and servants, obviously, were expected to work more steadily, but even so, their work schedule was nothing remotely as regular or disciplined as the current nine-to-five. The typical medieval serf, male or female, probably worked from dawn to dusk for 20 to 30 days out of any year, but just a few hours a day otherwise, and on feast days, not at all. And feast days were not infrequent. The main reason why work could remain so irregular was because it was largely unsupervised. This is true not only of medieval feudalism, but also of most labor arrangements anywhere until relatively recent times. It was true even if those labor arrangements were strikingly unequal. If those on the bottom produced what was required of them, those on the top didn't really feel they should have to be bothered knowing what that entailed. We see this again quite clearly in gender relations. The more patriarchal a society, the more segregated men's and women's quarters will also tend to be. As a result, the less men tend to know about women's work, and certainly the less able men would be able to perform women's work if the women were to disappear. Women, in contrast, usually are well aware of what men's work entails and are often able to get on quite well were the men for some reason to vanish. This is why, in so many past societies, large percentages of the male population could take off for long periods for war or trade without causing any significant disruption. Insofar as women in patriarchal societies were supervised, they were supervised by other women. Now, this did often involve a notion that women, unlike men, should keep themselves busy all the time. Idle fingers knit sweaters for the devil— my great-grandmother used to warn her daughter back in Poland. But this kind of traditional moralizing is actually quite different from the modern. If you have time to lean, you have time to clean, because its underlying message is not that you should be working, but that you shouldn't be doing anything else. Essentially, my great-grandmother was saying that anything a teenage girl in a Polish shtetl might be getting up to when she wasn't knitting was likely to cause trouble. Similarly, one can find occasional warnings by 19th century plantation owners in the American South or the Caribbean that it's better to keep slaves busy even at made-up tasks than to allow them to idle about in the off-season. The reason given always being that if slaves were left with time on their hands, they were likely to start plotting to flee or revolt. The modern morality of, you're on my time, I'm not paying you to lounge around, is very different. It is the indignity of a man who feels he's being robbed. A worker's time is not his own. It belongs to the person who bought it. Insofar as an employee is not working, she is stealing something for which the employer paid good money. Or, anyway, has promised to pay good money for at the end of the week. By this moral logic, it's not that idleness is dangerous. Idleness is theft. This is important to underline because the idea that one person's time can belong to someone else is actually quite peculiar. Most human societies that have ever existed would never have conceived of such a thing. As the great classicist Moses Finley pointed out, if an ancient Greek or Roman saw a potter, he could imagine buying his pots. He could also imagine buying the potter. Slavery was a familiar institution in the ancient world. 
but he would have simply been baffled by the notion that he might buy the potter's time. As Finley observes, any such notion would have to involve two conceptual leaps which even the most sophisticated Roman legal theorists found difficult. First, to think of the potter's capacity to work, his labor power, as a thing that was distinct from the potter himself, and second, to devise some way to pour that capacity out, as it were, into uniform temporal containers, hours, days, work shifts, that could then be purchased using cash. To the average Athenian or Roman, such ideas would have likely seemed weird, exotic, even mystical. How could you buy time? Time is an abstraction. An early Christian would have been outright offended, since time, properly speaking, belonged only to God. The closest he would have likely been able to come would be the idea of renting the potter as a slave for a certain limited time period, a day, for instance, during which time the potter would, like any slave, be obliged to do whatever his master ordered. But for this very reason, he would probably find it impossible to locate a potter willing to enter into such an arrangement. To be a slave, to be forced to surrender one's free will and become the mere instrument of another, even temporarily, was considered the most degrading thing that could possibly befall a human being. Though in fact Homer represents the fate of the Thes, or occasional agricultural hireling, who rented himself out in this manner as actually worse than a slave, since a slave at least is a member of a respectable household. As a result, the overwhelming majority of examples of wage labor that we do encounter in the ancient world are of people who are already slaves. A slave potter might indeed arrange with his master to work in a ceramics factory, sending half the wages to his master and keeping the rest for himself. The only notable exception to this rule is that free citizens in democracies were often willing to hire themselves out to the government for public works. But this is because the government, being seen as a collective of which the citizen was a member, it was essentially seen as working for oneself. Slaves might occasionally do free contract work as well, say, working as porters at the docks. Free men and women would not. And this remained true until fairly recently. Wage labor, when it did occur in the Middle Ages, was typical of commercial port cities such as Venice or Malacca or Zanzibar, where it was carried out almost entirely by unfree labor. So, how did we get to the situation we see today, where it's considered perfectly natural for free citizens of democratic countries to rent themselves out in this way, or for a boss to become indignant if employees are not working every moment of his time? First of all, it had to involve a change in the common conception of what time actually was. Human beings have long been acquainted with the notion of absolute or sidereal time by observing the heavens, where celestial events happen with exact and predictable regularity. But the skies are typically treated as the domain of perfection. Priests or monks might organize their lives around celestial time, but life on earth was typically assumed to be messier. Below the heavens, there is no absolute yardstick to apply. To give an obvious example, if there are 12 hours from dawn to dusk, there's little point saying a place is three hours walk away when you don't know the season when someone is traveling, since winter hours will be half the length of summer ones. 
When I lived in Madagascar, I found that rural people, who had little use for clocks, still often described distance the old-fashioned way and said that to walk to another village would take two cookings of a pot of rice. In medieval Europe, people spoke similarly if something is taking three paternosters or two boilings of an egg. This sort of thing is extremely common. In places without clocks, time is measured by actions rather than action being measured by time. There's a classic statement on the subject by the anthropologist Edward Evan Evans Pritchard on the subject. He's speaking of the newer, uh, pastoral people of East Africa. The newer have no expression equivalent to time in our language, and they cannot, therefore, as we can, speak of time as though it were something actual, which passes, can be wasted, can be saved, and so forth. I do not think that they ever experience the same feeling of fighting against time or having to coordinate activities with an abstract passage of time, because their points of reference are mainly the activities themselves, which are generally of a leisurely character. Events follow a logical order, but they are not controlled by an abstract system, there being no autonomous points of reference to which activities have to conform with precision. Newer are fortunate. Maurice Bloch, in Anthropology and the Cognitive Challenge, argues that Evans Pritchard overstates things, and is no doubt correct if Evans Pritchard really is making arguments as radical as is sometimes attributed to him, but I don't think he truly is. Anyway, the counterarguments have to do mainly with a sense of historical time rather than day-to-day -day activity. Time is not a grid against which work can be measured, because the work is the measure itself. The English historian E.P. Thompson, who wrote a magnificent 1967 essay on the origins of the modern time sense called Time, Work Discipline, and Industrial Capitalism, pointed out that what happened were simultaneous moral and technological changes, each propelling the other. By the 14th century, most European towns had created clock towers, usually funded and encouraged by the local merchant guild. It was these same merchants who developed the habit of placing human skulls on their desks as memento mori, to remind themselves that they should make good use of their time because each chime of the clock brought them one hour closer to death. The dissemination of domestic clocks and then pocket watches took much longer, coinciding largely with the advent of the Industrial Revolution beginning in the late 1700s, but once it did happen, it allowed for similar attitudes to diffuse among the middle classes more generally. Sidereal time, the absolute time of the heavens, had to come to earth and begin to regulate even the most intimate daily affairs. But time was simultaneously a fixed grid and a possession. Everyone was encouraged to see time as did the medieval merchant, as a finite property to be carefully budgeted and disposed of, much like money. What's more, the new technologies also allowed any person's fixed time on Earth to be chopped up into uniform units that could be bought and sold for money. Once time was money, it became possible to speak of spending time rather than just passing it, also of wasting time, killing time, saving time, losing time, racing against time, and so forth. Puritan, Methodist, and Evangelical preachers soon began instructing their flocks about the husbandry of time, 
proposing that the careful budgeting of time was the essence of morality. Factories began employing time clocks. Workers came to be expected to punch the clock upon entering and leaving. Charity schools designed to teach the poor discipline and punctuality gave way to public school systems where students of all social classes were made to get up and march from room to room each hour at the sound of a bell, an arrangement self-consciously designed to train children for future lives of paid factory labor. Those who designed modern universal education systems were quite explicit about all this. Thompson himself cites a number of them. I remember reading that someone once surveyed American employers about what it was they actually expected when they specified in a job ad that a worker must have a high school degree, a certain level of literacy or numeracy. The vast majority said no. A high school education, they found, did not guarantee such things. They mainly expected the worker would be able to show up on time. Interestingly, the more advanced the level of education, however, the more autonomous the students and the more the old episodic pattern of work tends to reemerge. Modern work discipline and capitalist techniques of supervision have their own peculiar histories, too, as forms of total control first developed on merchant ships and slave plantations in the colonies were imposed on the working poor back home. The West Indian Marxist Eric Williams, 1966, first emphasized the history of plantations in shaping the techniques of worker control later employed in factories. Marcus Redeker, in The Slave Ship, A Human History, adds ships, focusing on merchant vessels active in the slave trade as the main other experiment zone for rationalized work discipline during the period of merchant capital. Naval vessels are relevant, too, especially as they often employed unfree labor as well, since many of the sailors were pressed into service against their will. All of them involved contexts where, in the absence of long traditions of what one could or could not demand of an employee, which were still felt to apply in areas that had emerged more directly from feudal relations, closely supervised work could itself be reorganized around new ideals of clock-like efficiency. But the new conception of time was what made it possible. What I want to underline here is that this was both a technological and a moral change. It is usually laid at the feet of Puritanism, and Puritanism certainly had something to do with it. But one could argue equally compellingly that the more dramatic forms of Calvinist asceticism were just overblown versions of a new time sense that was, in one way or another, reshaping the sensibilities of the middle classes across the Christian world. As a result, over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, starting in England, the old episodic style of working came increasingly to be viewed as a social problem. The middle classes came to see the poor as poor largely because they lacked time discipline. They spent their time recklessly, just as they gambled away their money. Meanwhile, workers rebelling against oppressive conditions began adopting the same language. Many early factories didn't allow workers to bring their own timepieces, since the owner regularly played fast and loose with the factory clock. Before long, however, workers were arguing with employers about hourly rates, demanding fixed-hour contracts, overtime, time and a half, the 12-hour day, and then the 8-hour day. But the very act of demanding free time, however understandable under the circumstances, 
had the effect of subtly reinforcing the idea that when a worker was on the clock, his time truly did belong to the person who had bought it, a concept that would have seemed perverse and outrageous to their great-grandparents, as indeed to most people who have ever lived. Concerning the clash between the morality of time and natural work rhythms, and the resentment it creates. It's impossible to understand the spiritual violence of modern work without understanding this history, which leads regularly to a direct clash between the morality of the employer and the common sense of the employee. No matter how much workers may have been conditioned in time discipline by primary schooling, they will see the demand to work continually at a steady pace for eight hours a day regardless of what there is to do, as defying all common sense. And the pretend make-work they are instructed to perform as absolutely infuriating. One reason all this is not obvious is that we have been conditioned to think, when we think of wage labor, first of all of factory work, and factory work in turn as production line work, where the pace of labor is set by the machines. In fact, only a very small percentage of wage labor has ever been factory work, and a relatively small percentage of that based on conveyor belt-style production lines. I'll be talking more about the effect of such misconceptions in Chapter 6. I well remember my very first job as a dishwasher in a seaside Italian restaurant. I was one of three teenage boys hired at the start of the summer season, and the first time there was a mad rush, we naturally made a game of it determined to prove that we were the very best and most heroic dishwashers of all time, pulling together into a machine of lightning efficiency, producing a vast and sparkling pile of dishes in record time. We then kicked back, proud of what we'd accomplished, pausing perhaps to smoke a cigarette or scarf ourselves a scampi. Until, of course, the boss showed up to ask us what the hell we were doing just lounging around. I don't care if there are no more dishes coming in right now, you're on my time, you can goof around on your own time. Get back to work. So what are we supposed to do? Get some steel wool. You can scour the baseboards. But we already scoured the baseboards. Then get busy scouring the baseboards again. Of course, we learned our lesson. If you're on the clock, do not be too efficient. You will not be rewarded, not even by a gruff nod of acknowledgement, which is all we were really expecting. Instead, you'll be punished with meaningless busywork. And being forced to pretend to work, we discovered, was the most absolute indignity. Because it was impossible to pretend it was anything but what it was. Pure degradation. A sheer exercise of the boss's power for its own sake. It didn't matter that we were only pretending to scrub the baseboard. Every moment spent pretending to scour the baseboard felt like some schoolyard bully gloating at us over our shoulders. Except, of course, this time, the bully had the full force of law and custom on his side. So the next time a big rush came, we made sure to take our sweet time. It's easy to see why employees might characterize such make-work tasks as bullshit, and many of the testimonies I received enlarged on the resentment this produced. Here's an example of what might be called traditional make-work, from Mitch, a former ranch hand in Wyoming. Ranch work, he wrote, is hard but rewarding, and if you are lucky enough to work for an easygoing employer, it tends to alternate cheerfully between intense bursts of effort and just sort of hanging around. 
Mitch was not so lucky. His boss, a very old and well-respected member of the community, of some regional standing in the Mormon church, insisted as a matter of principle that whenever there was nothing to do, free hands had to spend their time picking rocks. Mitch. He would drop us off in some random field where we were told to pick up all the rocks and put them in a pile. The idea, we were told, was to clear the land so that tractor implements wouldn't catch on them. I called BS on that right off. Those fields had been plowed many times before I ever saw them. Plus, the frost heaves of the severe winters there would just raise more rocks to the surface over time. But it kept the paid hands busy and taught us proper work ethic. Meaning obedience, a very high principle is taught in Mormonism, blah blah. Right. A hundred square foot area of dirt would have hundreds of rocks the size of a fist or bigger. I remember once spending several hours in a field by myself, picking rocks, and I honestly tried to do my best at it. God knows why. Though I could see how futile it was. It was backbreaking. When the old boss came back to pick me up to do something else, he looked disapprovingly at my pile and declared that I hadn't really done very much work. As if being told to do menial labor for menial labor's sake wasn't degrading enough, it was made more so by my being told that my hours of hard work, performed entirely by hand with no wheelbarrow or any other tool whatsoever, simply wasn't good enough. Gee, thanks. What's more, no one ever came to haul off the rocks I had collected. From that day, they sat in that field exactly where I'd piled them, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were still there to this day. I hated that old man every day until the day he died. Mitch's story highlights the religious element. The idea that dutiful submission even to meaningless work under another's authority is a form of moral self-discipline that makes you a better person. This, of course, is a modern variant of Puritanism. For now, though, I mainly want to emphasize how this element just adds an even more exasperating layer to the perverse morality whereby idleness is a theft of someone else's time. Despite the humiliation, Mitch could not help but try to treat even the most pointless task as a challenge to be overcome, at the same time feeling a visceral rage at having no choice but to play a game of make-believe he had not invented, and which was arranged in such a way that he could never possibly win. Almost as soul-destroying as being forced to work for no purpose is being forced to do nothing at all. In a way, it's even worse, for the same reason that any prison inmate would prefer spending a year working on a chain gang breaking rocks to a year staring at the wall in solitary. Occasionally, the very rich hire their fellow human beings to pose as statues on their lawns during parties. Some real jobs seem very close to this. Although one does not need to stand quite as still, one must also do it for much longer periods of time. Clarence I worked as a museum guard for a major global security company in a museum where one exhibition room was left unused more or less permanently. My job was to guard that empty room, ensuring no museum guests touched the, well, nothing in the room, and ensure nobody set any fires. To keep my mind sharp and attention undivided, I was forbidden any form of mental stimulation, like books, phones, etc. Since nobody was ever there, 
In practice, I sat still and twiddled my thumbs for seven and a half hours, waiting for the fire alarm to sound. If it did, I was to calmly stand up and walk out. That was it. In a situation like that, I can attest to this because I have been in roughly analogous situations, it's very hard not to stand there calculating just how much longer would it likely take me to notice a fire if I were sitting here reading a novel or playing solitaire. Two seconds? Three seconds? That is, assuming I wouldn't actually notice it quicker because my mind would not, as it is now, be so pulped and liquefied by boredom that it had effectively ceased to operate. But even assuming that it was three seconds, just how many seconds of my life have been effectively taken from me to eliminate that hypothetical three-second gap? Let's work it out. I have a lot of time on my hands anyway. 27,000 seconds a work shift. 135,000 seconds a week. 3,375,000 seconds a month. Hardly surprising that those assigned such utterly empty labor rarely last a year unless someone upstairs takes pity and gives them something else to do. Clarence lasted six months, roughly 20 million seconds, and then took a job at half the pay that afforded at least a modicum of mental stimulation. These are obviously extreme examples, but the morality of you're on my time has become so naturalized that most of us have learned to see the world from the point of view of the restaurant owner, to the extent that even members of the public are encouraged to see themselves as bosses and to feel indignant if public servants, say transit workers, seem to be working in a casual or dilatory fashion, let alone just lounging around. Wendy, who sent me a long history of her most pointless jobs, reflected that many of them seem to come about because employers can't accept the idea that they're really paying someone to be on call in case they're needed. Wendy. Example one, as a receptionist for a small trade magazine, I was often given tasks to perform while I was waiting for the phone to ring. Fair enough, but the tasks were almost uniformly BS. One I will remember for the rest of my life. One of the ad salespeople came to my desk and dumped thousands of paper clips on my desk and asked me to sort them by color. I thought she was joking, but she wasn't. I did it only to observe that she then used them interchangeably without the slightest attention to the color of the clip. Example two, my grandmother, who lived independently in an apartment in New York City into her early 90s. She did need help, though, so we hired a very nice woman to live with her and keep an eye out. Basically, she was there in case my grandmother fell or needed help, and to help her do shopping and laundry, but if all went well, there was basically nothing for her to do. This drove my grandmother crazy. She's just sitting there, she would complain. We would explain that was the point. To help my grandmother save face, we asked the woman if she would mind straightening out cabinets when she wasn't otherwise occupied. She said no problem. But the apartment was small, the closets and cabinets were quickly put in order, and there was nothing to do again. Again, my grandmother was going crazy that she was just sitting there. Ultimately, the woman quit. When she did, my mother said to her, Why? My mother looks great. To which the woman responded famously, Sure, she looks great. I've lost 15 pounds and my hair is falling out. I can't take her anymore. 
The job wasn't BS, but the need to construct a cover by way of creating so much BS busywork was deeply demeaning to her. I think this is a common problem for people working for the elderly. It comes up with babysitting, too, but in a very different way. I was slightly surprised that someone born around 1900 or 1910 had already internalized such an attitude and asked Wendy if her grandmother had ever been a supervisor or employer. She didn't think so, but later discovered that her grandmother had briefly helped run a chain of groceries many years before. Not just. Once you recognize the logic, it becomes easy to see that whole jobs, careers, and even industries can come to conform to this logic. A logic that not so very long ago would have been universally considered utterly bizarre. It is also spread across the world. Ramadan al-Sakari, for example, is a young Egyptian engineer working for a public enterprise in Cairo. Ramadan. I graduated from the Electronics and Communications Department in one of the best engineering schools in my country, where I had studied a complicated major and where all the students had high expectations of careers tied to research and the development of new technologies. Well, at least that's what our studies made us think. But it wasn't the case. After graduation, the only job I could find was as a control and HVAC, heating, ventilating, and air conditioning engineer, in a corporatized government company, only to discover immediately that I hadn't been hired as an engineer at all, but really as some kind of a technical bureaucrat. All we do here is paperwork, filling out checklists and forms, and no one actually cares about anything but whether the paperwork is filed properly. The position is described officially as follows. Heading a team of engineers and technicians to carry out all the preventive maintenance, emergency maintenance operations, and building new systems of control engineering to achieve maximum efficiency. In reality, it means I make a brief daily check on system efficiency, then file the daily paperwork and maintenance reports. To state the matter bluntly, the company really just needed to have a team of engineers to come in every morning to check if the air conditioners were working, and then hang around in case something broke. Of course, management couldn't admit that, Ramadan and the other members of his team could have just as easily been sitting around playing cards all day or, who knows, even working on some of those inventions they'd been dreaming about in college, so long as they were ready to leap into action if a convector malfunctioned. Instead, the firm invented an endless array of forms, drills, and box-ticking rituals calculated to keep them busy eight hours a day. Fortunately, the company didn't have anyone on staff who cared enough to check if they were actually complying. Ramadan gradually figured out which of the exercises did need to be carried out and which ones nobody would notice if he ignored and used the time to indulge a growing interest in film and literature. Still, the process left him feeling hollow. Ramadan In my experience, this was psychologically exhausting, and it left me depressed having to go every workday to a job that I considered pointless. Gradually, I started losing interest in my work and started watching films and reading novels to fill the empty shifts. I now even leave my workplace for hours almost each shift without anyone noticing. Once again, the end result, however exasperating, doesn't seem all that impossibly bad, especially once Ramadan had figured out how to game the system. 
Why couldn't he see it then as stealing back time that he'd sold to the corporation? Why did the pretense and lack of purpose grind him down? It would seem that we are back at the same question with which we started. But at this point, we are much better equipped to find the answer. If the most hateful aspect of any closely supervised wage labor job is having to pretend to work to appease a jealous boss, jobs such as Ramadan's and Eric's are essentially organized based on the same principle. They might be infinitely more pleasant than my experience of having to spend hours, it seemed like hours, applying steel wool to clean perfectly clean baseboards. Such jobs are likely to be not waged, but salaried. There may not even be an actual boss breathing down one's neck. In fact, usually there isn't. But ultimately, the need to play a game of make-believe, not of one's own making, a game that exists only as a form of power imposed on you, is inherently demoralizing. So the situation was not, in the final analysis, all that fundamentally different from when me and my fellow dishwashers had to pretend to clean the baseboards. It is like taking the very worst aspect of most wage labor jobs and substituting it for the occupation that was otherwise supposed to give meaning to your existence. It's no wonder the soul cries out. It is a direct assault on everything that makes us human. Chapter 4 What is it like to have a bullshit job? On Spiritual Violence Part 2 the official line is that we all have rights and live in a democracy. Other unfortunates who aren't free like we are have to live in police states. These victims obey orders or else, no matter how arbitrary. The authorities keep them under regular surveillance. State bureaucrats control even the smallest details of everyday life. The officials who push them around are answerable only to higher-ups, public or private. Either way, Dissent or disobedience are punished. Informers report regularly to the authorities. All this is supposed to be a very bad thing. And so it is, although it is nothing but a description of the modern workplace. Bob Black, The Abolition of Work In the last chapter, we asked why it was that human beings so regularly find being paid to do nothing an exasperating, insufferable, or oppressive experience, often even when the conditions of employment are quite good. I suggested the answer reveals certain truths about human nature largely overlooked by economic science and even by the more cynical versions of popular common sense. Humans are social beings that begin to atrophy, even to physically decay, if they are denied regular contact with other humans. Insofar as they do have a sense of being an autonomous entity separate from the world and from others, it is largely from conceiving themselves as capable of acting on the world and others in predictable ways. Deny humans this sense of agency, and they are nothing. What's more, in bullshit jobs, the ability to perform acts of make-believe, which under ordinary circumstances might be considered the highest and most distinctly human form of action, especially to the extent that the make-believe worlds so created are in some way actually brought into reality, is turned against itself. Hence my inquiry into the history of pretend work and the social and intellectual origins of the concept that one's time can belong to someone else. 
How does it come to seem morally wrong to the employer that workers are not working, even if there is nothing obvious for them to do? If being forced to pretend to work is so infuriating because it makes clear the degree to which you are entirely under another person's power, then bullshit jobs are, as noted above, entire jobs organized on that same principle. You're working, or pretending to work, not for any good reason, at least any good reason you can find, but just for the sake of working. Hardly surprising, it should rankle. But there's one obvious difference, too, between bullshit jobs and a dishwasher being made to clean the baseboards in a restaurant. In the latter case, there is a demonstrable bully. You know exactly who is pushing you around. In the case of bullshit jobs, it's rarely so clear-cut. Who exactly is forcing you to pretend to work? The company? Society? Some strange confluence of social convention and economic forces that insist no one should be given the means of life without working, even if there's not enough real work to go around? At least in the traditional workplace, there was someone against whom you could direct your rage. This is one of the things that comes through strongly in the testimonies I assembled. The infuriating ambiguity. There is something terrible ridiculous, outrageous going on, but it's not clear whether you are even allowed to acknowledge it, and it's usually even less clear who or what can be blamed. Why having a bullshit job is not always necessarily that bad. Before exploring these themes, though, it's important to acknowledge that those who hold bullshit jobs are not uniformly miserable. As I mentioned in the last chapter, there were a handful of largely positive testimonials from workers who were quite satisfied with their bullshit jobs. It's hard to generalize about their common features because there really weren't all that many of them, but perhaps we can try to tease out a few. Warren. I work as a substitute teacher in a public school district in Connecticut. My job just involves taking attendance and making sure the students stay on task with whatever individual work they have. Teachers rarely, if ever, actually leave instructions for teaching. I don't mind the job, however, since it allows me lots of free time for reading and studying Chinese, and I occasionally have interesting conversations with students. Perhaps my job could be eliminated in some way, but for now, I'm quite happy. It's not entirely clear this is even a bullshit job. As public education is currently organized, Someone does have to look after the children in a given class period if a teacher calls in sick. As noted in the last chapter, it's true that the entire class period structure is really just a way to teach students time discipline for later factory work, and might now be considered redundant on that basis. But that's the system that exists. The bullshit element seems to lie in pretending that instructors such as Warren are there to teach, when everyone knows they're not. Presumably, this is so the students will be more likely to respect their authority when they tell them to stop running around and do their assignments. The fact that the role isn't entirely useless must help somewhat. Crucially, too, it is unsupervised, non-monotonous, involves social interaction, and allows Warren to spend a lot of time doing whatever he likes. Finally, it's clearly not something he envisions doing for the rest of his life. This is about as good as a bullshit job is likely to get. Some traditional bureaucratic jobs can also be quite pleasant, 
even if they serve little purpose. This is especially true if by taking the job, one becomes part of a great and proud tradition, such as the French civil service. Take Pauline, a tax official in Grenoble. Pauline. I'm a technical bankruptcy advisor in a government ministry equivalent to Britain's Inland Revenue Service. About 5% of my job is giving technical advice. The rest of the day, I explain incomprehensible procedures to my colleagues, help them locate directives that serve no purpose, cheer up the troops, and reassign files that the system has misdirected. Oddly enough, I enjoy going to work. It's as if I were being paid $60,000 a year to do the equivalent of Sudoku or crossword puzzles. This sort of carefree, happy-go-lucky government office environment is not as common as it used to be. It appears to have been extremely common in the mid-20th century, before internal market reforms. Reinventing government, as the Clinton administration put it, massively increased the degree of box-ticking pressure on public officials, but it still exists in certain quarters. Obviously, such environments are not always nearly as carefree for members of the public who have to interact with such officials. What makes Pauline's job so pleasant, it seems, is that she clearly gets along with her co-workers and is running her own show. Combine that with the respect and security of government employment, and then the fact that she's aware it's ultimately a rather silly show becomes not nearly so much of a problem. Both of these examples share another factor in common. Everyone knows that jobs like substitute teacher in America or tax official in France are mostly bullshit. So there's little room for disillusionment or confusion. Those who apply for such jobs are well aware of what they're getting into, and there are already clear cultural models in their heads for how a substitute teacher or tax official is supposed to behave. There does seem to be a happy minority, then, who enjoy their bullshit jobs. It is difficult to estimate their total numbers. The YouGov poll found that while 37% of all British workers felt their work served no purpose, only 33% of workers found it unfulfilling. Logically, then, at least 4% of the working population feel their jobs are pointless but enjoy them anyway. Probably the real number is somewhat higher. Obviously, the 4% figure would only be the case if no workers surveyed felt their work was both useful and unfulfilling, which is unlikely. The Dutch poll reported roughly 6%. That is, 18% of the 40% of workers who considered their jobs pointless also said they were at least somewhat happy doing them. No doubt, there are many reasons why this might be true in any individual case. Some people hate their families or find domestic life so stressful they treasure any excuse to get away from it. Others simply like their co-workers and enjoy the gossip and camaraderie. A common problem in large cities, especially in the North Atlantic world, is that most middle-class people now spend so much time at work that they have few social ties outside it. As a result, much of the day-to-day -day drama of gossip and personal intrigue that makes life entertaining for inhabitants of a village or small town or close-knit urban neighborhood, insofar as it exists at all, comes to be confined largely to offices or experienced vicariously through social media, which many mostly access in the office while pretending to work. But if that's true, 
and people's social life really is often rooted in the office, then it's all the more striking that the overwhelming majority of those in bullshit occupations claim to be so miserable. On the Misery of Ambiguity and Forced Pretense Let us return to the subject of make-believe. Obviously, a lot of jobs require make-believe. Almost all service jobs do to a certain extent. In a classic study of Delta Airlines flight attendants, the managed heart, commercialization of human feeling, sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild introduced the notion of emotional labor. Hochschild found air hostesses typically had to spend so much effort creating and maintaining a perky, empathetic, good-natured persona as part of their conditions of employment that they often became haunted by feelings of emptiness, depression, or confusion, unsure of who or what they really were. Emotional labor of this sort is not limited to service workers, of course. Many firms expect such work even in inward-facing office workers, especially women. In the last chapter, we observed Patrick's indignation at first encountering the demand to pretend to enjoy being a cashier. Now, flight attendant is not a bullshit job. As I've observed, few service workers feel that the services they provide are entirely pointless. The kind of emotional labor required by those in most bullshit jobs, however, is usually rather different. Bullshit jobs, too, require maintaining a false front and playing a game of make-believe. But, in their case, the game has to be played in a context where one is rarely quite sure what the rules are, why it is being played, who's on your team, and who isn't. At least flight attendants know exactly what's expected of them. What is expected of bullshit job holders is usually far less onerous, but it is complicated by the fact that they are never sure exactly what it is. One question I asked regularly was, does your supervisor know that you're not doing anything? The overwhelming majority said they didn't know. Most added that they found it hard to imagine their supervisors could be totally oblivious, but they couldn't be sure because discussing such matters too openly appeared to be taboo. But, tellingly, they weren't even entirely sure about exactly how far that taboo extended. To every rule, there must be exceptions. Some did report supervisors who were relatively open about the fact that there was nothing to do and who would tell their underlings that it was acceptable to pursue their own projects. But even then, such tolerance was only within reasonable parameters, and what sort of parameters were considered reasonable was rarely self-evident. Such matters had to be worked out by trial and error. I never heard a single case of a supervisor just sitting down with an employee and spelling out the rules, simply and honestly, regarding when she had to work, when she didn't, and how she could and could not behave when she wasn't working. Some managers communicate indirectly, by their own behavior. In the local British government office in which Beatrice worked, for example, supervisors indicated the appropriate level of pretense, just a little, during the week by live-streaming important sports events and similar acts of self-indulgence. On weekend shifts, in contrast, no pretense was required. Beatrice On other occasions, my role models known as senior management would stream World Cup football matches live into the office onto their desktops. I understood this gesture to be a form of multitasking, 
so I started to research my own projects whenever I had nothing to do at work. On the other hand, my weekend role was a breeze. It was quite a sought-after position in the authority because of the high rate of overtime pay. In that office, we did nothing. We made Sunday dinners, and I even heard stories of someone bringing a sunbed recliner into work so they could relax on it whilst we put the TV on. We surfed the internet, watched DVDs, but more often, we just went to sleep as there was nothing to do. We would get some rest in before Monday morning started. In other cases, the rules are set out explicitly, but in such a way that they are clearly made to be broken. While it is quite rare for supervisors to tell workers directly they are supposed to pretend to work, it does happen occasionally. One car salesman wrote, According to my superiors, if I'm being paid a salary, I have to be doing something and pretend to be productive even though there's no real value to the work. So I spend several hours a day making phone calls to nobody. Does that make any sense? Too much honesty in such matters appears to be a profound taboo almost anywhere. I remember once in graduate school, I had a gig doing research for a Marxist professor who, among many other things, specialized in the politics of workplace resistance. I figured if I could be honest with anyone, it would be him. So after he had explained to me how the timesheet worked, I asked, So how much can I lie? How many hours is it okay to just make up? He looked at me as if I'd just said I was a star seed from another galaxy, so I quickly changed the subject and assumed the answer was a discreet amount. Robin, hired as a temp in North Carolina but not assigned any duties, managed to turn technical competence into a way to mitigate the experience. To a degree. Robin. I was told that it was very important that I stay busy, but I wasn't to play games or surf the web. My primary function seemed to be occupying a chair and contributing to the decorum of the office. At first, this seemed pretty easy, but I quickly discovered that looking busy when you aren't is one of the least pleasant office activities imaginable. In fact, after two days, it was clear that this was going to be the worst job I had ever had. I installed Lynx, a text-only web browser that basically looks like a DOS disk operating system window. No images, no flash, no JavaScript, just monospace text on an endless black background. My absent-minded browsing of the Internet now appeared to be the work of a skilled technician, the web browser a terminal into which diligently typed commands signaled my endless productivity. This allowed Robin to spend most of his time editing Wikipedia pages. As far as temporary jobs are concerned, the worker is often effectively being tested for his or her ability to just sit there and pretend to work. In most cases, one is not, like Robin, told explicitly whether they are allowed to play computer games. But if there are a lot of temporary hires, it's usually possible to make discrete inquiries of one's fellows and get some sense of what the ground rules are and just how flagrantly one has to violate them to actually get fired. Sometimes, in longer-term positions, there is enough camaraderie among employees that they can discuss the situation openly and find common strategies to use against supervisors. Solidarity in such circumstances can bring a sense of common purpose. Robert speaks of the legal aids at a crooked law firm. Robert. 
The weirdest thing about this job is how, in a twisted way, it was kind of enjoyable. The legal assistants were all smart and interesting people, and working a job that was so clearly meaningless led to a great deal of bonding and gallows humor among the team. I managed to maneuver my way into a desk with its back to the wall, so I could spend as much time as possible surfing the internet or teaching myself computer programming. Much of what we did was obviously inefficient, like manually relabeling thousands of files, so I'd automate it, and then use the time it would have taken me to complete it manually to do whatever I wanted. I also always made sure to have at least two projects run by different bosses, so that I could tell both of them that I was spending a lot of time on the other project. At the very least, there can be a conspiracy of silence on such shirking strategies. Sometimes, active cooperation. In other cases, one can be lucky enough to find a supervisor who is both willing to be fairly honest and agreeable enough to set almost explicit parameters for loafing. The emphasis here is on almost. One can never simply ask. Here's someone who has an on-call job at a travel insurance company. He's basically a duct taper, there to straighten out things once every month or two when something goes predictably awry in their relation to their partner company. Otherwise, Calvin, any given week, there will be a few situations where our partner company is supposed to reach out to my team for advisory. So, for up to 20 minutes a week, we have actual work to do. Ordinarily, though, I send five or eight 15-word emails a day, and every few days, there's a 10-minute team meeting. The rest of the work week is functionally mine, though not in any way I can flaunt. So I flit through social media, RSS aggregation, and coursework in a wide but short browser window I keep discreetly on the second of my two monitors. And every few hours, I'll remember I'm at a workplace and respond to my one waiting email with something like, We agree with the thing you said. Please proceed with the thing. Then I only have to pretend to be visibly overworked for seven more hours each day. David. So if you didn't look busy, who would notice? Does that person know there's nothing really to do and just wants you to look busy, do you think? Or do they actually believe it's a real full-time job? Calvin. Our team manager seems to know what's up, but she's never let on to having problems with it. Occasionally, I will have days with zero work at all, so I'll let her know that and volunteer to help out another department if they're bogged down in some way. That help is never needed, it seems, so... My letting her know is my way of declaring, I'm going to be on Twitter a full eight hours, but I told you in advance, so it's actually extremely noble of me. She schedules hour-long weekly meetings that haven't once had ten minutes of content. We spend the rest of them chatting casually. And since her bosses, up however high, are aware of the genuine problems the other company can cause, I think it's presumed we're wrangling their nonsense or at least might have to at any given second. Not all supervisors, then, subscribe to the ideology of you're on my time, particularly in large organizations where managers don't have much of a proprietary feeling anyway and don't have reason to believe they'll get in much trouble with their own superiors if they notice one of their subordinates slacking off. They might well let matters take their own course. This kind of polite, coded, mutual consideration is perhaps about as close to honesty in such situations as one is likely to get. But even in such maximally benevolent circumstances, 
there is a taboo on being too explicit. The one thing that could never apparently happen is for anyone to actually say, basically, you're just here in case of emergencies. Otherwise, do what you like and try not to get in anybody's way. And even Calvin feels obliged to pretend to be overworked, just as a reciprocal gesture of appreciation and respect. Many workplaces are keenly aware of the dangers of easygoing supervisors and take active measures to head them off. Those who work counters and fast food chains, which, of course, are in my turns generally shit jobs and not bullshit jobs, often tell me that each branch is carefully wired by closed-circuit TV to ensure that workers with nothing to do are not allowed to just sit around relaxing. If they are observed to do so by those monitoring in some central locations, their supervisor is called up and chewed out. More typically, supervisors simply find subtle ways to say, just shut up and play along. Maria My first meeting on arriving to start this job was with my line manager, who was very quick to explain that she had absolutely no idea what the person who used to do my job actually did. But, luckily for me, that predecessor was still around. She had just moved up inside the team and would be able to show me everything that she had done in her former role. She did. It took about an hour and a half. Everything she had done also turned out to be virtually nothing. Maria couldn't handle the idleness. She begged her co-workers to let her do a share of their work, something to make herself feel she had some reason to be around. Driven to distraction, she finally made the mistake of openly complaining to her manager. Maria I spoke to my manager, who very clearly told me not to advertise the fact that I wasn't mega busy. I asked her to at least send any unclaimed work my way, and she told me she would show me a few of the things she does, but never did. This is as close to being told directly to pretend to work as one is likely to get. Even more dramatic, but in no way unusual, is the experience of Lillian, hired as Digital Product Project Manager in the IT department of a major publishing house. Despite the somewhat pretentious-sounding title, Lillian insists that such positions are not necessarily bullshit. She'd had a similar gig before, and while it was relatively undemanding, she did get to work with a small, friendly team solving genuine problems. This new place, however, as best she could reconstruct what happened, much of it had occurred just before she arrived, her immediate supervisor, an arrogant blowhard obsessed with the latest business fads and buzzwords, had sent out a series of bizarre and contradictory directives that had the unintended consequence of leaving Lillian with no responsibilities at all. When she gently pointed out there was a problem, her concerns were brushed aside with eye rolls and similar gestures of impatient dismissal. Lillian One would think that, as a project manager, I would somehow be running the process. Except there is no room in the process for that to happen. No one is running this process. Everyone is confused. Other people expect me to help them and organize things and give them the confidence that people usually look to a project manager for because I've been given that title. But I have no authority and no control over anything. So I read a lot. I watch TV. I have no idea what my boss thinks I do all day. As a result of her situation, 
Lillian has to come up with two quite difficult false fronts, one for her superior and another for her underlings. In the first case, because she can only speculate what, if anything, her supervisor actually wants her to do. In the second, in the fact that about the only positive contribution she is allowed to make is to adopt an air of cheerful confidence that might inspire her subordinates to do a better job. Cheer up the troops, as Pauline might put it. Or at least not infect them with her own desperation and confusion. Underneath, Lillian was riddled with anxiety. It's worth quoting her comments at length, because they give a sense of the spiritual toll such a situation can take. Lillian What's it like to have a job like this? Demoralizing. Depressing. I get most of the meaning in my life from my job, and now my job has no meaning or purpose. It gives me anxiety because I think that at any moment someone is actually going to realize that nothing would change if I were not here, and they could save themselves the money. It also trashes my confidence. If I'm not constantly being met by challenges that I am overcoming, how do I know that I'm capable? Maybe all my ability to do good work has atrophied. Maybe I don't know anything useful. I wanted to be able to handle bigger and more complex projects, but now I handle nothing. If I don't exercise those skills, I'll lose them. It also makes me afraid that other people in the office think the problem is me. That I'm choosing to slack off or I'm choosing to be useless when nothing about this is my choice and all my attempts to make myself more useful or give myself more work are met with rejection and not a small amount of derision for attempting to rock the boat and challenge my boss's authority. I have never been paid so much to do so little, and I know I'm not earning it. I know my coworkers with other job titles do significantly more work. I might even get paid more than them. How bullshit would that be? I'd be lucky if they didn't hate me on that basis alone. Lillian testifies eloquently to the misery that can ensue when the only challenge you can overcome in your own work is the challenge of coming to terms with the fact that you are not, in fact, presented with any challenges. When the only way you can exercise your powers is in coming up with creative ways to cover up the fact that you cannot exercise your powers. Of managing the fact that you have, completely against your choosing, been turned into a parasite and fraud. An employee would have to be confident indeed not to begin to doubt herself in such a situation. And such confidence can be pernicious in itself. It was her boss's idiotic cocksureness, after all, that created the situation to begin with. Psychologists sometimes refer to the kind of dilemmas described in this section as scriptlessness. Psychological studies, for instance, find that men or women who had experienced unrequited love during adolescence were in most cases eventually able to come to terms with the experience and showed few permanent emotional scars. But for those who had been the objects of unrequited love, it was quite another matter. Many still struggled with guilt and confusion. One major reason, researchers concluded, was precisely the lack of cultural models. Anyone who falls in love with someone who does not return their affections has thousands of years worth of romantic literature to tell them exactly how they are supposed to feel. However, while this literature provides detailed insight on the experience of being Cyrano, 
It generally tells you very little about how you are supposed to feel, let alone what you're supposed to do if you're Roxanne. One friend of mine who once had a prolonged affair with a married man noted a similar difficulty. Unlike the betrayed wife, there's very little in the way of cultural models telling the other woman how she's supposed to feel. She's thinking of writing a book to begin to make up the gap. I hope she does so. Many, probably most bullshit jobs, involve a similar agonizing scriptlessness. Not only are the codes of behavior ambiguous, no one is even sure what they are supposed to say or how they are supposed to feel about their situation. On the Misery of Not Being a Cause Whatever the ambiguities, almost all sources concur that the worst thing about a bullshit job is simply the knowledge that it's bullshit. As noted in Chapter 3, much of our sense of being a self, a being discreet from its surrounding environment, comes from the joyful realization that we can have predictable effects on that environment. This is true for infants and remains true throughout life. To take away that joy entirely is to squash a human like a bug. Obviously, the ability to affect one's environment cannot be taken away completely. Rearranging objects in one's backpack or playing fruit mahjong is still acting on the world in some way. But most people in the world today, certainly in wealthy countries, are now taught to see their work as their principal way of having an impact on the world, and the fact that they are paid to do it as proof that their efforts do indeed have some kind of meaningful effect. Ask someone, what do you do? And he or she will assume you mean, for a living. Many speak of the intense frustration of learning gradually that they are instead paid to do nothing. Charles, for instance, started out of college working in the video game industry. In his first job at Sega, he began as a tester, but was soon promoted to localization, only to discover it was a typical on-call job where he was expected to sit around pretending to work in between dealing with problems that came up only once a week on average. Like Lillian, the situation made him doubt his own value. Working for a company that essentially was paying me to sit around doing nothing made me feel completely worthless. He quit after superiors bawled him out for being late to work and threw himself instead into a whirlwind romance. A month later, he tried again. At first, he thought the new job, also for a gaming company, was going to be different. Charles In 2002, I was hired by Big Game Co. in L.A. as an associate producer. I was excited about this job because I was told I would be in charge of writing the design document that bridged the desires of the artists with the realities of what the programmers could do. For the first few months, though, there was nothing to do. My big duty every day was ordering dinner from a delivery place for the rest of the staff. Again, just sitting around doing emails. Most days I would go home early because why the fuck not? With so much time on my hands, I started dreaming of having my own business and began using all the free time to start making the website for it. Eventually, the producer above me threatened to report me to the owner for doing this, though. So I had to stop. Finally, I was allowed to start work on the sound design document. I threw myself into this work. I was so happy to be doing it. 
When it was done, the producer told me to upload it to the shared server for everyone working on the game. Immediately, there was uproar. The producer who hired me hadn't realized there was a sound design department a floor below us that makes these documents for each game. I had done someone else's job. This producer had already made some other big mistake, so he asked me to take the blame for this so he wouldn't get fired. Every ounce of my soul rebelled against doing this. My friends in programming, though, who were actually enjoying having an incompetent producer because it meant they had the freedom to do whatever they wanted, asked me to take the bullet for them. They didn't want the producer replaced by someone that would rein them in. So I accepted responsibility, quit the next day, and haven't worked for someone else since then. Thus did Charles say farewell to the world of formal paid employment and began playing guitar for a living and sleeping in his van. Things are rarely quite as obvious as this. Cases where the worker is basically doing nothing at all, though, as we've seen, this certainly can happen. It's more common for there to be at least a modicum of work and for the worker to either immediately or gradually come to understand that work is pointless. Most employees do think about the social value of what they do, and whatever tacit yardstick they apply, once they judge their work to be pointless, this judgment cannot fail but affect the experience of doing that work, whatever the nature of the work or conditions of employment. Of course, when those conditions are also bad, matters often become intolerable. Let's look at a worst-case scenario. Unpleasant work, bad conditions, Obvious uselessness. Nigel was a temp worker hired by a company that had won a contract to scan the application forms for hundreds of thousands of company loyalty cards. Since the scanning equipment the company used was imperfect, and since its contract stated that each form would be checked for errors no fewer than three times before being approved, the company was obliged to bus in a small army of temps every day to act as data perfectors. This is how he describes his work. Nigel. It is hard to explain what this level of entranced boredom was like. I found myself conversing with God, pleading for the next record to contain an error, or the next one, or the next. But the time seemed to pass quickly, like some kind of near-death experience. There was something about the sheer purity of the social uselessness of this job, combined with the crippling austerity of the process that united the data perfectors. We all knew that this was bullshit. I really think that if we had been processing applications for something that had a more obvious social value, organ transplant registration, say, or tickets to the Glastonbury Rock Festival, then it would have felt different. I don't mean that the process would have been any less tedious. An application form is an application form, but... The knowledge that no one cared about this work, that there was really nothing of any value riding on how we did the job, made it feel like some sort of personal test of stamina, like Olympic endurance boredom for its own sake. It was really weird. Finally, there came a point where a few of us decided we just couldn't take it anymore. We complained one day about one of the supervisors being rude, and the very next morning, we got a call from the agency saying we were no longer needed. Fortunately for Nigel, his fellow workers were all temps with no loyalty to the organization and 
no reason to keep quiet about what was going on, at least with one another. Often, in more long-term assignments, it's hard to know exactly who one can and can't confide in. Where for some, pointlessness exacerbates boredom. For others, it exacerbates anxiety. Greg spent two years working as a designer of digital display advertising for a marketing agency, creating those annoying banner ads you see on most websites. The entire enterprise of making and selling banner ads, he was convinced, is basically a scam. The agencies that sell the ads are in possession of studies that made clear that web surfers largely didn't even notice and almost never clicked on them. This didn't stop them, however, from basically cooking the books and holding junkets with their clients where they presented them with elaborate proof of the ad's effectiveness. Since the ads didn't really work, client satisfaction was everything. Designers were told to indulge their clients every whim, no matter how technically difficult, self-indulgent, or absurd. Greg. High-paying clients generally want to reproduce their TV commercials within the banner ads and demand complex storyboards with multiple scenes and mandatory elements. Automotive clients would come in and demand that we use Photoshop to switch the steering wheel position or fuel tank cap on an image the size of a thumbnail. Such exacting demands were made and had to be accommodated as designers stewed in the knowledge that no web surfer would possibly be able to make out such tiny details in a rapidly moving image from the corner of her eye. All this was barely tolerable, but once Greg actually saw the aforementioned studies, which also revealed that even if the surfer did see them, she wouldn't click on the banner anyway, he began to experience symptoms of clinical anxiety. Greg. That job taught me that pointlessness compounds stress. When I started working on those banners, I had patience for the process. Once I realized that the task was more or less meaningless, all that patience evaporated. It takes effort to overcome cognitive dissonance, to actually care about the process or pretending to care about the result. Eventually, the stress became too much for him, and he quit to take another job. Stress was another theme that popped up regularly. When, as with Greg, one's bullshit job involves not just sitting around pretending to work, but actually working on something everyone knows, but can't say, is pointless, the level of ambient tension increases, and often causes people to lash out in arbitrary ways. We've already met Hannibal, who makes extraordinary amounts of money writing reports designed to be waved around in pharmaceutical marketing meetings and later thrown away. In fact, he confines the bullshit aspects of his employment to a day or two a week, just enough to pay the bills, and spends the rest of his time engaged in medical research aimed at eradicating tuberculosis in the global south, which no one seems to want to pay for. This gives him the opportunity to compare behavior in both his workplaces. Hannibal. That's the other thing I've noticed. The amount of workplace aggression and stress I see in people is inversely correlated with the importance of the work they're doing. The client's going fucking apeshit because they're under pressure from their boss to get this presentation ready for the Q3 planning meeting on Monday. They're threatening to cancel the entire fucking contract unless we get it delivered by tomorrow morning. We're all going to need to stay late to finish it. 
Don't worry, we'll order some shitty junk food pizzas and pissy lager in so we can work through the night. This is typical for the bullshit reports. Whereas working on meaningful stuff always has more of a collaborative atmosphere. Everyone working together toward a greater goal. Similarly, while few offices are entirely free of cruelty and psychological warfare, many respondents seem to feel they were particularly prevalent in offices where everyone knew, but did not wish to admit, that they weren't really doing much of anything. Annie. I worked for a medical care cost management firm. I was hired to be part of a special tasks team that performed multiple functions within the company. They never provided me with this training, and instead my job was to pull forms from the pool into the working software, highlight specific fields on those forms, return the forms to the pool for someone else to do something with them. This job also had a very rigid culture, no talking to others, and it was one of the most abusive environments I ever worked in. In particular, I made one highlighting error consistently during my first two weeks of employment. I learned this was wrong and immediately corrected it. However, for the entire remainder of my time at this company, every time someone found one of these mishighlighted forms, I would be pulled aside to talk about it. Every time, like it was a new issue. Every time, like the manager didn't know these were all done during the same period and it wasn't happening anymore. Even though I told her every time. Such minor acts of sadism should be familiar to most of us who have worked in office environments. You have to ask yourself, what was the supervisor who called in Annie time and time again to talk to her about a mistake that she knew perfectly well had long since been corrected, actually thinking? Did she somehow forget each time that the problem had been resolved? That seems unlikely. Her behavior appears to be a pure exercise of power for its own sake. The pointlessness of the exercise. Both Annie and her boss knew nothing would really be achieved by telling someone to fix a problem that's already been fixed, made it nothing more than a way for the boss to rub that fact that this was a relation of pure arbitrary power in Annie's face. It was a ritual of humiliation that allows the supervisor to show who's boss in the most literal sense and it puts the underling in her place, justified no doubt by the sense that underlings are generically guilty, at the very least of spiritual insubordination, of resenting the boss's tyranny, in the same way that police who beat suspects they know to be innocent will tell themselves the victim is undoubtedly guilty of something else. Annie I did this for six months before deciding I'd rather die than continue. This was also, however, the first time I made a living wage doing anything. Before that, I was a preschool teacher, and while what I was doing was very important, I made $8.25 an hour in the Boston area. This leads us to another issue. The effects of such situations on employees' physical health. While I lack statistical evidence, if the testimonies are anything to go by, Stress-related ailments seem a frequent consequence of bullshit jobs. I've read multiple reports of depression, anxiety overlapping with physical symptoms of every sort, from carpal tunnel syndrome that mysteriously vanishes when the job ends to what appears while it's happening like autoimmune breakdown. Annie, too, became increasingly ill. 
Part of the reason, she felt in retrospect, was the extreme contrast between the work environments of her previous job and this one. David. I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like to move from a real job, teaching and taking care of children, to something so entirely pointless and humiliating just to pay the rent. Do you think there are a lot of people in that situation? Annie. I imagine it has to be pretty common. Low-paying childcare jobs have a really high turnover. Some people get additional training and can move on to something more sustaining, but a lot of the ones I've watched leave, mostly women, end up in some office or retail management. One part of the experience I think about a lot is that I went from an environment where I was touched and touching all day long, picking kids up, getting hugs, giving piggybacks, rocking to sleep, into an environment where nobody talked to each other, let alone touched each other. I didn't recognize the effect this had on my body while it was happening, but now in retrospect, I see what a huge impact it had on my physical and mental health. I suspect that not only is Annie right, but she is describing an unusually dramatic example of what is, in fact, a very common dynamic. Annie was convinced that not only was her particular job pointless, but also that the entire enterprise shouldn't really exist. At best, it was a giant exercise in duct-taping, making up for some bits of the damage caused by the notoriously dysfunctional American healthcare system, of which it was an intrinsic part. But of course, no one was allowed to discuss such matters in the office. No one was allowed to discuss anything in the office. The physical isolation was continuous with the social isolation. Everyone there was forced to become a little bubble unto himself or herself. In such minimal but clearly unequal social environments, strange things can start to happen. Back in the 1960s, the radical psychoanalyst Eric Fromm first suggested that non-sexual forms of sadism and necrophilia tend to pervade everyday affairs in highly puritanical and hierarchical environments. Fromm's prime example of a non-sexual sadist is Joseph Stalin, and of a non-sexual necrophiliac, Adolf Hitler. In the 1990s, the sociologist Lynn Chancer synthesized some of these ideas with those of feminist psychoanalyst Jessica Benjamin to devise a theory of sadomasochism in everyday life. What Chancer found was that unlike members of actual BDSM subcultures, who are entirely aware of the fact that they are playing games of make-believe, purportedly normal people in hierarchical environments typically ended up locked in a kind of pathological variation of the same sadomasochistic dynamic. The person on the bottom struggles desperately for approval that can never, by definition, be forthcoming. The person on the top going to greater and greater lengths to assert a dominance that both know is ultimately a lie. For if the top were really the all-powerful, confident, masterly being he pretends to be, he wouldn't need to go to such outrageous lengths to ensure the bottom's recognition of his power. And of course, there is also the most important difference between make-believe S&M play, and those engaged in it actually do refer to it as play, and its real-life non-sexual enactments. In the play version, all the parameters are carefully worked out in advance by mutual consent, with both parties knowing the game can be called off at any moment simply by invoking an agreed-on safe word. For example, 
Just say the word orange, and your partner will immediately stop dripping hot wax on you and transform from the wicked marquee to a caring human being who wants to make sure you aren't really hurt. Indeed, one might argue that much of the bottom's pleasure comes from knowing she has the power to affect this transformation at will. Romance novels, for instance, tend to feature attractive men who appear cruel and heartless, but are ultimately revealed to be kind-hearted and decent instead. One might argue that BDSM practice, from a submissive woman's perspective, encodes the possibility of this transformation as part of the structure of the event and under her own ultimate control. This is precisely what's lacking in real-life sadomasochistic situations. You can't say orange to your boss. Supervisors never work out in advance in what ways employees can and cannot be chewed out for different sorts of infractions, and if an employee is, like Annie, being reprimanded or otherwise humiliated, she knows there's nothing she can say to make it stop. No safe word except perhaps, I quit. To pronounce these words, however, does more than simply break off the scenario of humiliation. It breaks off the work relationship entirely, and might well lead to one's ending up playing a very different game, one where you're desperately scrounging around to find something to eat, or how to prevent one's heat from being shut off. On the Misery of Not Feeling Entitled to One's Misery I am suggesting, then, that the very meaninglessness of bullshit employment tends to exacerbate the sadomasochistic dynamic already potentially present in any top-down hierarchical relationship. It's not inevitable. Some supervisors are generous and kind, but the lack of any feeling of common purpose, any reason to believe one's collective actions in any way make life better for those outside the office or really have any significant effect on anyone outside the office— will tend to magnify all the minor indignities, distempers, resentments, and cruelties of office life, since, ultimately, office politics is all that's really going on. Many, like Annie, were terrified by the health effects. Just as a prisoner in solitary confinement inevitably begins to experience brain damage, the worker deprived of any sense of purpose often experiences mental and physical atrophy. Nori whom we met in Chapter 2, repairing code for an incompetent Viennese psychologist, kept something of a diary of each of his successive bullshit jobs and their effects upon his mind and body. Nori. Job 1. Programmer. Pointless. Startup. Effect on me? I first learned self-loathing. Got a cold every month. Imposter syndrome killed my immune system. Job 2. Programmer. Vanity Project Startup. Effect on me? I pushed myself so hard that I damaged my eye, forcing me to relax. Job 3. Software Developer. Scam Small Business. Effect on me? Usual depression, unable to find energy. Job 4. Software Developer. Doomed, dysfunctional ex-startup. Effect on me? Relentless mediocrity and fear due to my inability to focus crippled my mind. I got a cold every month. Warping my consciousness to motivate myself killed my immune system. PTSD. My thoughts were thoroughly mediocre. 
Nori had the misfortune to stumble through a series of relentlessly absurd and or abusive corporate environments. He managed to keep himself sane, at least to the degree of fending off complete mental and physical breakdown, by finding a different sense of purpose. He began to carry out a detailed analysis of the social and institutional dynamics that lie behind failed corporate projects. Effectively, he became an anthropologist. This has been very useful to me. Thanks, Nori. Then he discovered politics and began diverting time and resources toward plotting to destroy the very system that created such ridiculous jobs. At this point, he reports, his health began to markedly improve. Even in relatively benign office environments, the lack of a sense of purpose eats away at people. It may not cause actual physical and mental degeneration, but at the very least, it leaves workers struggling with feelings of emptiness or worthlessness. These feelings are typically in no sense mitigated, but actually compounded by the prestige, respect, and generous compensation that such positions often confer. Like Lillian, bullshit job holders can be secretly tortured by the suspicion that they are being paid more than their actually productive underlings. How bullshit would that be? Or that others have legitimate reason to hate them. This left many genuinely confused about how they should feel. No moral compass was available. One might consider this a kind of moral scriptlessness. Here is a relatively mild case. Finn works for a company that licenses software on a subscription basis. Finn. From the moment I first read the Bullshit Jobs essay a couple of years back, it resonated with me. I continue to pull it out occasionally to read and refer friends to. I'm a manager of technical support for a software-as-a-service company. My job seems to mostly consist of sitting in meetings, emailing, communicating, coming changes to my team, serving as an escalation point for client issues, and doing performance reviews. Performance reviews, Finn admits, are bullshit, explaining, everyone already knows who the slackers are. Actually, he acknowledges readily that most of his responsibilities are bullshit. The useful work he performs consists mainly of duct taping, solving problems caused by various unnecessarily convoluted bureaucratic processes within the company. Plus, the company itself is fairly pointless. Finn. Still, sitting down to write this, there's part of my brain that wants to defend my bullshit job. Mostly because the job provides for me and my family. I think that's where the cognitive dissonance comes in. From an emotional standpoint, it's not like I'm invested in my job or the company in any way. If I showed up on Monday and the building had disappeared, not only would society not care, I wouldn't either. If there's any satisfaction that comes from my job, it's being an expert in navigating the waters of our disorganized organization and being able to get things done. But being an expert in something that is unnecessary is, as you can imagine, not all that fulfilling. My preference would be to write novels and opinion essays, which I do in my spare time, but I fear the leap from my bullshit job will mean being incapable of making ends meet. This is, of course, a commonplace dilemma. The job itself may be unnecessary, but it's hard to see it as a bad thing if it allows you to feed your children. 
You might ask what kind of economic system creates a world where the only way to feed one's children is to spend most of one's waking hours engaged in useless box-ticking exercises or solving problems that shouldn't exist. But then, you can equally well turn this question on its head and ask whether all this can really be as useless as it seems if the economic system that created these jobs also enables you to feed your children. Do we really want to second-guess capitalism? Perhaps every aspect of the system, no matter how apparently pointless, is just the way it has to be. Yet, at the same time, one cannot also dismiss one's own experience that something is terribly amiss. Many others spoke, like Lillian, of the agonizing disparity between the outward respect they received from society and the knowledge of what they actually did. Dan, an administrative contractor for a British corporation's offices in Toronto, was convinced he did only about an hour or two of real work a week, work he could have easily done from home. The rest was entirely pointless. Putting on a suit and coming to the office was, he felt, just an elaborate sacrificial ritual, a series of meaningless gestures he had to perform in order to prove himself worthy of a respect he did not deserve. At work, he wondered constantly if his co-workers felt the same way. Dan. It felt like some Kafkaesque dream sequence that only I had the misfortune of realizing how stupid so much of what we were doing was, but deep down inside, I felt as if this experience had to be a silently shared one. We must have all known. We were an office of six people, and we were all managers. There were easily more managers in the building than actual employees. The situation was completely absurd. In Dan's case, everyone played along with the charade. The environment was in no way abusive. The six managers and their supervising managers of managers were polite, friendly, mutually supportive. They all told one another what a terrific job they were doing and what a disaster it would be for everyone else if they weren't there as part of the team. But only, Dan felt, as a way of consoling one another in the secret knowledge they were hardly doing anything, that their work was of no social value, and that if they weren't there, it would make no difference. It was even worse outside the office, where he began to be treated as the member of his family who had really made something of his life. It's honestly hard to describe how mad and useless I felt. I was being taken seriously as a young professional, but did any of them know what it was I really did? Eventually, Dan quit to become a science teacher in a Cree Indian community in northern Quebec. It doesn't help that higher-ups in such situations will regularly insist that perceptions of futility are self-evidently absurd. It doesn't always happen. Some managers, as we've seen, will basically wink and smile. A precious few might honestly discuss at least part of what's going on. But since middle managers generally see their role as one of maintaining morale and work discipline, they will often feel they have little choice but to rationalize the situation. In effect, doing so is the only part of their jobs that isn't bullshit. Plus, the higher you climb in the hierarchy, the more oblivious the managers are likely to be. But at the same time, the more formal authority they tend to have. Vasily works as a research analyst for a European foreign affairs office. His office, he reports, 
has just as many supervisors as researchers, and every sentence of any document produced by a researcher invariably ends up being passed up two levels of hierarchy to be read, edited, and passed down again repeatedly until it makes no sense. Granted, this would be more of a problem if there were a chance that anyone outside the office would ever read them, or, for that matter, be aware they existed. Vasily does occasionally try to point all this out to his superiors. Vasily, if I question the utility or sense of our work, my bosses look at me as if I'm from another planet. Of course they do. For them, it is crucial that the work we're doing is not seen as total nonsense. If that would be the case, the positions would be canceled and the result would be having no job. In this case, it's not the capitalist economic system, but the modern international state system that, between the various consular services, United Nations, and Bretton Wood institutions, creates untold thousands of usually high-paid, respectable, comfortable jobs across the planet. One can argue, as in all things, about which of these positions are truly useful and for what. Presumably, some do important work. Preventing wars, for instance. Others arrange and rearrange furniture. What's more, there are pockets inside the apparatus that appear to their low-ranking denizens, at least, as entirely superfluous. This perception, says Vasily, creates feelings of guilt and shame. Vasily, when I am in public and people ask me about my job, I don't want to. There's nothing to say, nothing to be proud of. Working for the foreign ministry has a high reputation, so when I am saying, I am working for the foreign ministry, people usually react with a mix of respect and not really knowing what I am doing. I think the respect makes it even worse. There are a million ways to make a human feel unworthy. The United States, so often a pioneer in such areas, has, among other things, perfected a quintessentially American mode of political discourse that consists in lecturing others about what jerks they are to think they have a right to something. Call it right-scolding. Right-scolding has many forms and manifestations. There is a right-wing version, which centers on excoriating others for thinking the world owes them a living, or owes them medical treatment when they are gravely ill, or maternity leave, or workplace safety, or equal protection under the law. But there is also a left-wing version, which consists of telling people to check their privilege when they feel they are entitled to pretty much anything that some poor or more oppressed person does not have. According to these standards, even if one is beaten over the head by a truncheon and dragged off to jail for no reason, one can only complain about the injustice if one first specifies all the categories of people to which this is more likely to occur. Right scolding may have seen its most baroque development in North America, but it has spread all over the world with the rise of neoliberal market ideologies. Under such conditions, it's understandable that demanding an entirely new, unfamiliar right, such as the right to meaningful employment, might seem a hopeless project. It's hard enough nowadays being taken seriously when asking for things you're already supposed to have. Article 23 of the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, states, Everyone has the right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work, and to protection against unemployment. It also guarantees equal pay for equal work, 
compensation adequate to support a family, and the right to form labor unions. It says nothing about the purpose of the work itself. The burden of right scolding falls above all on the younger generations. In most wealthy countries, the current crop of people in their 20s represents the first generation in more than a century that can, on the whole, expect opportunities and living standards substantially worse than those enjoyed by their parents. Yet at the same time, they are lectured relentlessly from both left and right on their sense of entitlement for feeling they might deserve anything else. This makes it especially difficult for younger people to complain about meaningless employment. Let us end, then, with Rachel to express the horror of a generation. Rachel was a math whiz with an undergrad degree in physics, but from a poor family. She aspired to pursue a graduate degree, but with British university tuition fees having tripled and financial assistance cut to the bone, she was forced to take a job as catastrophe risk analyst for a big insurance company to raise the requisite funds. A year out of her life, she told herself, but hardly the end of the world. Rachel. It's not the worst thing in the world. Learn some new skills, earn some money, and do a bit of networking while you're at it. Such was my thinking. Realistically, how bad is it going to be? And obviously, in the back of your head, the resounding, loads of people spend their whole lives doing boring, back-breaking work for barely any money. What on earth makes you too special for one year in a boring office job? That last one is an overarching fear for self-aware millennials. I can barely scroll through Facebook without hitting some preachy think piece about my generation's entitlement and reluctance to just do a bloody day's work for Christ's sake. It is sort of hard to gauge whether my standards for an acceptable job are reasonable or just the result of ridiculous generation snowflakey entitled bollocks, as my grandma likes to say. This is, incidentally, a particularly British variation of right scolding, though it increasingly infects the rest of Europe. Older people who grew up with cradle-to-grave welfare state protections mocking young people for thinking they might be entitled to the same thing. There was also another factor, much though Rachel was slightly embarrassed to admit it. The position paid extremely well, more than either of her parents was making. For someone who'd spent her entire adult existence as a penniless student supporting herself through temping, call center, and catering jobs, it would be refreshing to finally get a taste of bourgeois life. Rachel I'd done the office thing and the crap job thing, so how bad could a crap office job be, really? I had no concept of the bottom-of-the-ocean black depths of boredom I would sink to under a bulk of bureaucracy, terrible management, and myriad bullshit tasks. Rachel's job was necessitated by various capital holding requirement regulations, which, like all corporations in a similar situation, her employer had no intention of respecting. Thus, a typical day consisted of taking in emails each morning with data on how much money different branches of the firm would expect to lose in some hypothetical catastrophe scenario, cleaning the data, copying the data into a spreadsheet, whereupon the spreadsheet program invariably crashed and had to be rebooted, and coming up with a figure for overall losses. Then, if there was a potential legal problem, Rachel was expected to massage the numbers until the problem went away. That's when things were going well.
On a bad day or bad month, when there was nothing else to do, her supervisors would make up elaborate and obviously pointless exercises to keep her busy, such as constructing mind maps. Or just leave her with nothing, but always with the proviso that while doing nothing, she had to actively pretend not to be. The office was also rife with bullying and deeply, deeply strange office politics. The usual sadomasochistic dynamics one can expect to ensue in hierarchical environments as usual, too exacerbated by the shared guilty knowledge that there's nothing really at stake. Rachel The weirdest and, apart from the title, maybe most bullshitty thing about my job was that while it was generally acknowledged that there wasn't really enough work to do, you weren't allowed to conspicuously not work. In a hark back to the days of the early internet, even Twitter and Facebook were banned. My academic degree was pretty interesting and involved a lot of work, so again, I had no concept of the horrible dread I would feel getting up in the morning to spend all day sitting in an office trying to inconspicuously waste time. <laughs> 